0: Hello and welcome to the Blast From Our Past podcast. We are the podcast that gives you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, and fan castings, all from the nostalgic things of our past. I'm Adam. I'm John. And today we've got a special episode. Uh, I think they're, they're all special episodes when you think about it because they all hit the cockles of your heart and they warm you. But few movies warm me the way Shawshank Redemption does. Straight out, flat out. Not lying, this is the movie that I have considered my favorite movie of all time since I was, I believe, in, about high school. So this is one, it's not one that uh, I'm going to be shying away from as to how much I love this film.
1: No, and I uh, I also have been a fan of this film probably around the time we saw it together, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Probably on TV or maybe mom rented it on on uh, VHS back in the day. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that because VHS plays a very important role in this film.
0: Uh, Yeah, we'll get into that uh, in a little bit. But uh, some other stuff that we've got in this episode. So it's not just Shawshank Redemption. We're kind of doing an entire prison courtroom kind of episode for you. Nothing really ties in well with Shawshank from our childhood, except we thought the courtroom dramedy, more so comedy, uh, the sitcom Night Court would fit pretty well and pretty interesting just cuz you know it has that whole courtroom vibe and kind of the law vibe and uh it's definitely one that I remember seeing on reruns when I was a kid. Uh I didn't I don't think I really watched it too much when it was actually on, maybe because it ran for a little while, for a good bit actually, for 9 seasons. Yeah. But uh I definitely remember seeing that show in syndication. And then for our casting today, we are going to be doing real life Prisoners. So, we're going to be casting some people who were like serial killers, other people, you know, if some people who were like particularly famously in jail, uh, we are casting a few of them for just a, a fairly interesting casting. One, we did not want to recast Shawshank. Maybe we could have recast Night Court, honestly. That kind of could have been pretty damn funny, but maybe we'll save that for another episode. But we just thought, eh, we'll do some like real life prisoners, and that might be an interesting thing because biopics are always pretty fun and interesting to watch. I agree. The Shawshank Redemption came out in 1994. Uh, That's a pretty damn good year. A really good year for film. But John, tell us a little bit about the year 1994.
1: Yeah, so uh, 1994, Oscars that year, Best Picture, went to a film we might actually get to on this podcast, maybe down the road. It's not exactly something from our childhood, but it's a damn fine film, and that's Braveheart.
2: Braveheart!
0: Oh fuck yeah, that that one I, I haven't seen that one in a while, but I love it. That was like always Braveheart with Shawshank was always like in my perennial top five yeah. for the longest time, and it still probably is. I just haven't rewatched it in probably maybe like five six years, and so I need to get back to it. But like that one, oh man, one of the, yeah, one of the films that makes me cry, it makes me it makes me feel everything. I really really like Braveheart.
1: Yeah, It's a great movie. The Billboard Year End Hot 100 single of 1994. Number one was "The Sign" by Ace of Base.
0: Oh God, yes. We I heard that song so much, particularly because of our sister. Yes, she loved Ace of Base. <laughs> And they were fun. Yeah, that's, that song was everywhere. And then it uh, turned out that one of them was a Nazi. What? <laughs> when did that happen?
1: I had to double check, but I remember hearing... Uh Actually, Kevin Smith talked about it on one of his podcasts, uh, okay. uh, how one of them had posted some pro-Nazi rhetoric on social media.
0: Oh, shit. All right. Well, we are not pro-Nazis. We are anti-Ace of Base <laughs> uh, when it comes to Nazism. Just so you know, this is an anti-Nazi podcast. We've always has been and always will be. Um, so, <laughs>
1: yeah. All right. A couple more things. 1994 was the year of the infamous Tanya Harding... Nancy Kerrigan uh, debacle where a mystery man uh, took a collapsible baton to Nancy Kerrigan's knees, and then you got that uh, unfortunate, incessant whining.
0: Why? Why? It's so good.
1: And also in 1994, uh, an earthquake induced a uh, power outage in Los Angeles, and emergency calls came in all over the center about a giant silvery cloud that was over the city. Do you know what that was? The Milky Way.
0: The Milky Way. They could finally see- They could finally see the stars. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, I live out in LA, and I can attest, it is awfully smoggy. You can't see stars at night. Uh, And actually- I have a little somewhat story about the, the 1994 earthquake. Obviously, we were still in Georgia at the time, but my last uh, apartment, a condo that I was renting, it had a, v- a crack pretty much like in its foundation, and the doors were all shifted because of the 1994 earthquake that was centered in Northridge, California, where, where I was living, and so the condo you could actually see not like an actual shift of where the uh, the doors like should be lying, right. And how they're lying now because of the earthquake and like the sliding the sliding door. Uh, the sliding glass door was fine, but like every couple months, I had to either try to replace or I just fucking like threw out my screen door yeah. because it could not shut because of just the way that the foundation had been shifted. And so like no screen door could actually move properly. Yeah. And it just, it pissed me off so much, John. <laughs> I can't tell you how angry I was at screen doors at that last apartment. I don't blame you. Weird story. Yeah, weird story. When, if a screen door doesn't shut properly, uh, when things just don't work the way they're supposed to, it angers me and I flip out. And I definitely like picked up a screen door and, and threw it at one point um, and that happens. <laughs> That was a thing that happened. <laughs> yes. And that kind of stuff all happened in or because of 1994. Very good year. All right, John. Well, let's just go ahead and incarcerate ourselves in Shawshank Redemption. Don't be so obtuse, Adam. <laughs> Fuck you. Shawshank Redemption, 1994. This film was directed by Frank Darabont, who I best know from Shawshank, but also he did The Green Mile. He was uh, a producer and kind of the showrunner of The Walking Dead show, mm-hmm. uh, particularly that first season or maybe the first couple seasons. This film is based on a Stephen King novella called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption.
1: Actually, it's just, it's just Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. There's no the in there.
0: Oh, okay. Well, thank you, John. (laughs) Essential. It is. (laughs) Well, if people searching for it, if they added the, maybe they couldn't find it.
1: Actually, if you search, for, it's in a book called Different Seasons. Mm. So it's not its own story. It's in a series of short stories called Different Seasons. Okay. Each story sort of centers around a different season. And the uh, Shawshank story is the spring because the, the sort of tagline is Hope Springs Eternal.
0: Oh, okay. All
1: right. Um, it's actually. I've read the book. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. It's great stories. It's not like it's not typical Stephen King uh, horror. It's just good stories. Okay. Um nice. I have not.
0: I have not read them. Not gonna lie.
1: They're all really good. The very last one I remember was slightly did have a slightly strange tinge to it. It was a little weird, but the story itself was really good. So I cool. I really recommend that book if you've never read it.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of pissed at myself for not actually reading. Uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, uh, because it's—I mean—it's my favorite favorite movie. It's been for so long, and I'm like, why have I not read that? You know what? I'm gonna tell you. This is
1: something that's not always true, but in this case, it's true. I think the movie is better than the story.
0: Yeah, uh, I would. I could. I could imagine that. I mean, just knowing how good the movie is.
1: It's a short story, and a lot of the characters that we come to love in the movie are barely mentioned. Mm. Like the one—the most obvious one that comes to me is uh, Brooks. Mm-hmm. Is only mentioned like for maybe a paragraph.
0: Okay, gotcha. And so
1: they really expanded him for the movie.
0: I mean, he yeah, he's a very interesting and tragic character who you you absolutely love and you feel for. So yeah, which will which we'll get to. But that's that's interesting.
1: Also, I believe this was Frank Darabont's first major motion picture.
0: No, well, he killed it. He <laughs> absolutely killed it. Yeah,
1: he had done some writing before this. I think this was his directorial debut, or at least for
0: it was for a first full length film. I think you're probably right there, which is very impressive. Music for this film was done by Thomas Newman. Uh, He's done some other movies that we all know, things like Lost Boys, things like Great Outdoors, Son of a Woman. American Beauty is one that stands out for me because that's another score that I absolutely love.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a great score.
0: Yeah, and then he also did uh, Finding Nemo, Wally. He's done a bunch of stuff. Yeah, this score, this is one that I absolutely like. I think it's very powerful. It's very emotional. Yes, it's it's one I've, I I listen to. It's one I've got, and uh, I kind of like, I like to listen to it when I'm reading. Um, but it's good. It's a very very good score.
1: Thomas Newman is one of those guys whose his name really does I think belong in the same pantheon as your Hans Zimmer's, your John Williams. Mm-hmm. People who are in the know know who he is, but for the general public, I think he kind of flies under the radar. Yeah. He's another one who constantly puts out great scores.
0: He does. He has a bunch of them, and they are all good. I mean, exactly. There's like, there's like the couple ultimate elites. Like, like I'd say John Williams and and Hans Zimmer are pretty much like our top two film scores. Right. And then there's like that next level right below where I'd put like the Danny Elfman's. I would put the the James Horner. Yeah. I would put Alan Silvestri's right there, and Thomas Newman is like right on the cusp, if not in that group as well. Agreed. Uh, this film was. Uh, Shot the cinematographer was Roger Deakins who if you work at all in the industry if you know much about film Roger Deakins is kind of like he's a huge name when it comes to cinematography Um, He's he's worked a lot with the Coen brothers Mm. Uh, He he shot Fargo Big Lebowski. Oh brother. Where art thou no country for old men? True grit Um, So like big with that stuff. He also filmed this film with this movie looks absolutely gorgeous Yeah, it is and Roger Deakins just won his first Oscar ever uh, for the movie Blade Runner twenty forty nine, that's
1: insanity to me. Yeah, yeah, he
0: is such he is such a big name and such a talent. It is a shock that he has only won uh, one Oscar, and it was just recently. And I had I still haven't seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but I've heard it's absolutely beautiful. I heard it's it's fantastic film, but I never saw it because I never really cared for the first Blade Runner. Don't hate me, don't hate me, people. Do you want to know a secret? What's that? I didn't really like the original Blade Runner. Either. Yeah. <laughs> I just eh, I di- it didn't do it for me. So that's why I didn't really want to go see the new one, but I've heard it's awesome. So, I mean, maybe I'd like it.
1: I think I'd like I'd like to go see it just for just for the visuals of it because I've heard that was pretty mm-hmm. pretty good and pretty stunning. You know, it's one of those I think maybe I'd like to see once just to see all the the bright lights and shit, but that's probably all I'm going to need.
0: Cool. Yeah, I agree. Shawshank was edited by Richard Francis Bruce, who is another Pretty damn big name. He's done a lot of good credits. A movie that I hope maybe we'll get to down the line. Maybe we'll, maybe we won't. Uh, A Robin Williams film called Cadillac Man that I think is pretty damn underrated. Uh, He edited that. He also edited things like Seven, The Rock, Air Force One. And then also with with Frank Darabont, he edited The Green Mile. So a very strong editor on here. And this film stars uh, Tim Robbins as Andy Dufresne. You know Tim Robbins from Bull Durham, Nothing to Lose, bunch of stuff. Top Gun if you know where to look. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And Morgan Freeman is uh, really our lead actor. He was actually up for the Oscar for Best Leading Actor, not Supporting Actor, for this film. Well, he does narrate the film. He, He does narrate, exactly. I think that's probably why he was considered a lead actor, even though he wasn't top billing, Tim Robbins, his name right. came first before Morgan Freeman. So that's why, and even, and he's the center of everything. So that's kind of why I always kind of considered Andy the lead as opposed to red, but whatever. So i got Morgan Freeman plays red. He, you all know Morgan Freeman. I hope I don't have to explain. He's been in <laughs> an absolute million things. And in my opinion, uh, whenever we unfortunately lose Morgan Freeman, it's going to happen eventually, just like everybody. But to me, this is Morgan Freeman's biggest and best role that he's ever done. He has done tons of things, but when but when it comes down to like what people will remember him for, I feel like it's going to be his character of Red in Shawshank Redemption.
1: This this is for sure the movie that made me sit up and notice him. Yeah. You know, and I was like 13 years old at the time when this one came out, and I probably didn't see it for a year or two afterwards cuz this is this was not a movie I would have gone to see in the theater obviously. So it would have been something that we saw later, but it's the fil- it's the to me, Morgan Freeman's career starts here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's done stuff before this, you know, lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though he actually I believe he started acting late. Yeah. Like he didn't start until he was in his 40s, I think. 30s or 40s to start acting. He was late to the game. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. But to me, this is this is when I noticed Morgan Freeman, and
0: I agree. This definitely shot him up, and I think you know this because he did the narration. This, that also really you know you get that iconic Morgan Freeman narration voice, <laughs> and I feel like this is the movie that kind of helped start that yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, one interesting tidbit, just for me, I because I've seen this movie so many times, and I'm just I love the characters of Andy and Red. I have this memorization. In my head, it's it's like burned in there. <laughs> they don't say this like explicitly at all in the film. They don't really like call them out by their numbers. But I've memorized Andy's and Red's prison numbers. Oh wow! And I've known this, I've known this for years, and I will <laughs> probably know this until I die. But Andy Dufresne, his prison number is three seven nine two seven, and Red is three zero two six five. And I've just, I've, I guess, I've seen the movie so many times that. I've just, I've just, you know, you see it on their chest and you just know it and you kind of like pick it up as trivial knowledge, but it's one that I've, I I forget, I'll probably never forget those. And maybe I'll make it a task to try and remember everybody else's numbers too, (laughs) but because those are the two main characters, for some reason, those always stuck in my head. So, um, a couple other important actors who are in this film, Bob Gunton, he played Warden Norton and he was in the Daredevil series. Fairly recently as uh, Owsley. Uh, and he was in uh, just that first season, I believe it was. Oh, okay. And probably one uh, a character who I absolutely love and love to hate is Captain Hadley. And that's played by Clancy Brown, uh, who we all, a lot of us know as, you know, Spongebob. <laughs> or as, not Spongebob, as uh, Krusty Krab or whatever his name is. Mr. Krabs. Mr. Krab, whatever. I don't watch the show. <laughs> um, but he's the voice of that. But he's done a hundred different things as well. Yeah. He was in Highlander as well. But I remember him best, and I will always remember him as Captain Hadley.
1: I actually, uh, I don't believe it was this past year, but I think it was the year before, I actually met Bob Gunton at a Star Trek convention.
0: Oh, he was on, he was on Star Trek stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of those guys who were around in the 80s and 90s have, were all did cameos on any of the, because there was like three series out at the same time yeah. at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could not have been a nicer guy. Very cool. Just a sweetheart. He was absolutely cool, was gracious with... Uh, the other people I saw him meeting with me when I when I got to meet him, I am forever a Bob Gunton fan, not just because of that. Also, Bob Gunton is, was on one of my favorite TV shows that only lasted, I believe, one or two seasons. I think it was honestly just one season. It was Greg the Bunny.
0: Oh, yeah. the, the Seth, Seth Green? Wasn't he in that show? Seth Green was in that show, too, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I remember that. So was Eugene Levy. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And Sarah Silverman.
1: It had a great cast, and the show was super funny and only lasted, I think, a year or two. It might have only been one season.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely remember it. Well, I want to say that that just really adds to... The quality of Bob Gunton's acting—if he's really nice guy, because he is a dick in a hat in this film—I <laughs> I, kind of mention this
1: now. I was uh, in preparing for this. I was listening to some interviews with some of the cast, you know, uh, and uh, Clancy Brown was talking about how he was having hard time—he or what he called a weak actor moment. He was having a weak actor moment where he couldn't just—he couldn't identify. With you know what his character was doing, and it was Bob Gunton who said to him, "Listen, this whole story is told from memory." He goes, "It's a memory play. It's about Red's memory of what happened." So those outside characters like the warden and uh, Hadley, they're only one dimensional because that's how Red remembers them. Mm. That's the that's the only side of their story you see is the prisoner side. And so he said once Bob, uh, once Bob got and told him that he had no problems getting into character.
0: Yeah. That's, it's an interesting idea. I never really thought of it that way, but that t- makes total sense as to why some of those other, those super side characters, the ones that he's not friends with, you know, are just incredibly one dimensional. Mm-hmm. I like that. And there's uh, so back to the cast, <laughs> there's a bunch of other people in the film. Uh, William Sadler is probably the biggest name besides the people we already mentioned uh he plays haywood but and and i best remember him as death in <laughs> bill and ted's bogus journey <laughs> and it was a long time before i realized
1: that that's who he was
0: yeah yeah i guess he was yeah the, as the grim reaper yeah. it was it was awesome
1: <laughs> he he's great in everything you see him in even if he's a small part when he you know when he played the he played the father of the murdered girls in green mile he was great mm-hmm. in that one He's good in everything he does.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good character actor. Done a lot of like small parts, but he's, he's very effective. Mm-hmm. So Shawshank Redemption was nominated for seven Oscars. Seven. And you think odds are it might win one of them. It didn't win a damn single Oscar, which pisses me off.
1: That's a damn shame.
0: Yeah, uh, it was nominated for Best Original Score, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, Best Writing for Non-Original Screenplay. Best Best Leading Actor with Morgan Freeman, and Best Picture, and it didn't win any of them. And I am honestly still bitter to this day, still bitter that Forrest Gump won Best Picture over Shawshank Redemption. Oh, I've gone back and watched both movies. Forrest Gump is a good film; Mm -hmm. it's good. And I can at the time, it's like it's like if the Oscars set you know if somebody set out to make a blockbuster Oscar film, right? Like I'm gonna make a super feel-good family movie kind of thing, even though it has some it has some other moments. But I'm gonna make sure the Oscars are aware of it, where Shawshank is like, oh, we're just gonna set up a really fucking kick-ass film. And not even just that, honestly, I'm probably even more bitter. And even though Shawshank Redemption is my favorite film of all time, when I really, really think about it, I don't think Shawshank or Forrest Gump should have won Best Picture that year. Hmm. It should have gone to Pulp Fiction. Oh, Pulp Fiction. What Pulp Fiction did for film is, I think, inarguably more important than what Forrest Gump or Shawshank did for film. The way that Tarantino rearranged storytelling and the way that Sally Menke did that editing, like, Pulp Fiction has totally changed the way some films are made. And it, it opened up, like, in a whole new style of things. Like, it, it really, really affected cinema, where I don't think Forrest Gump affected cinema. And I don't think Shawshank really affected cinema all that much other than both being very, very good films. And in my opinion, Shawshank being the best of even all of those films. I still think what Pulp Fiction did has an importance that it probably should have gotten more recognition than it got.
1: That's true. But I will counter with this. The effects of that movie are something that I don't think we're seeing until years later
0: no, of course not and and there's a very interesting debate that i I think it's on cracked or I know I know it's on cracked I, if you listen to their if you listen to the cracked podcast, go and listen to them after you listen to ours <laughs> and uh they're good, but they they've had debates where they think Oscars for Best Picture shouldn't be decided the year of the film or like that you know just in the, each that Oscar season It should be delayed five years to really kind of see how the film's hold up with a little bit of time because then you can kind of step away from them and you can step away from like the grandeur of something then it would have been like, you know, you could have stepped away from some of the shittier movies that won best picture. Mm-hmm. Um trying to think, you know, something, something like, like, like a crash, you know, I really liked crash when I first saw it. And then like, you go back like five years later and you watch it and you're like, oh, this is this is kinda like dribble. This is kind <laughs> of like a little like on the nose and it's not nearly subtle enough for good filmmaking. And probably something like Brokeback Mountain should have won that year mm-hmm. because that's just like honestly a, a better film. Same with this one. I, I think I think it's a very interesting mentality to take for the Oscars. They would never do it, of course. Yeah. But uh, I, I just I like that argument. And so that's why I think it would be interesting to have Pulp Fiction actually win. But you know what? With Forrest Gump, we got that sweet chain of Bubba Gump shrimp restaurants that are all (laughs) over big cities and Shawshank doesn't have a restaurant chain. I don't think Pulp Fiction does either. So, you know, so yay for Bubba Gump shrimp. (laughs) Let's fry everything and throw it in your face. Done. I love it. All right. Uh, Shawshank, I would not consider was a commercial success Uh, the film had a $25 million budget and it only ended up making $28 million domestically. And it's not really, I think, a film that probably did very well overseas. I guess guess it's made its money back, but I just thought that was interesting. You know, a lot of these more interesting artistic and deep kind of films it's also was rated r so mm-hmm. you know you're not going to get as big of a crew as a as big of a um, an audience as like something like forrest gump that you can bring your kids to right and have that kind of stuff so i think that that ultimately probably ended up hurting the film a little bit when it comes to like oscar season and right. uh, getting getting cost but i will
1: say being nominated for an oscar is actually i think what caused its eventual success uh, because it was nominated for an oscar it was the top rented movie of
0: 1994. Mm, okay.
1: What brought this movie to cult status was the VHS rental market. Okay. That's where the word of mouth started to get out about this film. It f- flew way under the radar for for its, you know, theatrical releases. Then, when it was nominated for Best Picture, people started to go back and be like, "Okay, well, obviously something is good about this film. Let's go check it out." And then word of mouth just spread, and this is, you know, pre 1994 at best. We might have had uh, AOL Instant Messenger, if that.
0: Maybe I don't even remember it being around. Yeah, if that. If
1: that. So it's it's vastly word of mouth, and that's really what catapulted this movie up. And I I, I haven't looked to see who what's there anymore. But for the longest time, this movie was rated number one on IMDb's best movies list. It still is. It still I is. just checked. Okay.
0: Yeah, it, it's just barely above The Godfather. It, those
1: two are always sort of switching places ever uh, a little bit. But I think mm-hmm. it's. I think Shawshank is always above. Has been above uh, Godfather more than than the reverse.
0: No, it's it's uh, it's a highly regarded film and and well loved by the people. Probably more loved by the people than it is by the critics. Agreed. So yeah. Uh, We've already kind of, I've already kind of mentioned this uh, that Shawshank Redemption is my favorite film of all time, and yeah, I I remember seeing it in high school. uh, And for me, I don't know if I don't remember like a VHS release or coming in. What I really remember is seeing it on TNT all the time.
1: Yes, and it still is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and
0: and for good reason. Yeah. So I'm pretty certain when I first saw it, I didn't get a lot of the adult stuff. Um, I definitely, I know it took me a while to realize that the sisters were raping Andy. Like right. when I first saw the film a few times, I, 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 sh- I had no idea. I was like, oh, those guys are just mean. <laughs> uh, and then it eventually clicked, like probably later in high school or something. And it's just like, oh, fuck, that's what they're doing. <laughs> because also, I'm sure a lot of that shit got cut out in the TV cut that I never saw. And then I finally start seeing like, you know, we had the, the VHS or the DVD or something. Right. And I started seeing the uncut version. I was just like, oh, oh, fuck. That's what's happening. <laughs> and I will say I probably come back and watch this film about once a year, maybe once every two years at the absolute latest. But it's probably it's probably on average once a year is when I see this film.
1: And it's, it's probably been a little while since I've seen it this time. I, I used to watch it pretty regularly. Uh, in preparation for this, I watched it twice.
0: Oh, okay. That, see, I, I want to go back and do watch it. Like the second the I watched this, the whole thing, and I'm taking my notes – And literally, I'm like, fuck, I I only watched this last night, and I finished around like 11 o'clock, and I want to be like, I just want to go back and rewatch this and not take any notes and just just engulf myself in the film. Well,
1: I watched it first with director's commentary, and then I went back and I was like, I want to watch the actual movie now, so I went back (laughs) and watched it again.
0: Yeah, very cool. All right, so now now let's actually get into the film. (laughs) We've talked enough about it. (laughs) This is going to be... A long episode I, I just know it uh, We've got a lot to say about this film So I hope you guys can bear with us And enjoy a little bit of extra time With Adam and John Buckle up folks <laughs> uh, We start off with this Like old oldie song If I didn't care
1: If I didn't care
2: More than words can say
0: That kind of puts us immediately into, like, it's a period piece. We see Tim Robbins. We see Andy Dufresne in his car with a gun and alcohol. And then we're kind of intercutting immediately with this court scene, talking about the night his wife was murdered. And we're kind of getting these flashbacks in between as they're talking about this in the courtroom. Andy, he just, he comes across very cold and very straight uh, at the beginning. So I tried, I tried to take my notes even though i've seen this movie so many times i tried to put in some aspects of like if this would be your first time ever seeing this film what would it be like for you mm-hmm. in this moment it looks like andy did some shit right it's pretty convincing that andy got drunk shot his wife and the golf pro she was that she was fucking yeah and the evidence is overwhelmingly against him and he gets sentenced with two life sentences one for each of the, the people that he killed. And they, they do a really good job of not telling us if he's innocent or guilty, other than him him saying he's innocent, but he's you, you can't really believe it right now because even as an audience member, everything is stacked up against him and you kind of believe it at this point.
1: An interesting thing about this opening scene, uh, originally it was two different scenes. You originally had the first scene of him in the car with the gun and uh, all the stuff with the lovers, Then it was the courtroom scene, Uh but they didn't get enough footage of the actual of the two lovers together because they Mm -hmm. they didn't book enough time in the spot where they were uh, filming. And so they were racking the him and the uh, Darabont and the editor were racking their brains on how to do it. And Darabont finally had his aha moment in the shower Mm. (laughs) and came in and said, we're going to take both scenes and combine them and make it a courtroom scene with flashbacks.
0: That it works so well though, because as opposed to seeing what happened and then you hear again what happens in the courtroom, right? It, it merges together, and you're kind of seeing and hearing it all at the same time. And that I think that it's a, it's a better, it's better experience for us as an audience.
1: I think it was something that uh, that happened out of necessity, but in the long mm-hmm. run, was the best decision, regardless.
0: Yeah, I mean, very, but somewhat similarly, Jaws out of necessity, they had to not show the shark because it looked like shit. And then it turned out to be one of the most important parts of the film, right. not seeing the shark until way later. Yep. Very cool. And now Andy's been sentenced. We're going to cut to uh, Red's parole hearing. And we kind of keep coming back to this through the film. And they do a great job with these parole hearings uh, intermittently. Like every 10 years, he gets up for parole. Mm-hmm. And so right now he's been in, pr- he's been in prison for 20 years and uh he gets rejected but I, I really love is this initial performance by morgan freeman each, each and i'm going to i'll come back to him but each parole hearing is some of them somewhat similar but totally different yeah in this first one you can tell he has his parole speech memorized and he's going to say what he's going to say of oh yes i'm a changed man i'm totally reformed but you know it's rehearsed and you know it's fake yeah and at this moment you know i don't think i really believe red has changed all that much and i don't think the other people do either right but he does such a good job of conveying that as an actor and he gets rejected yep red Red gets rejected and it's Honestly, like the whole parole hearings are a bit of a joke in the film. Mm-hmm. Other inmates, they call him, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm up for rejection next week. <laughs> it's just kind of it's kind of funny. Yeah. Morgan Freeman's performance, I think, is is really good. And we'll keep coming back to those throughout the film. We see Red in the yard with some of the other inmates. We kind of we get his narration. So now we're actually starting his story, him leading this story. And we find out a couple things about him, that he's a guy who can help get shit for you. You know, every prison has got someone like that. And then we get this alarm and, a, and the bus with Andy and some other new inmates are coming in and we get this beautiful. This is one of the shots and I'll talk about a couple specific shots in the film. Mm-hmm. This is one of the shots that sticks in my brain at how gorgeous it is and how it just it encapsulates the vastness of Shawshank mm-hmm. where it's a big aerial shot. You have like everybody in this prison yard kind of f- flocking over to where the bus is going, but the shot is way over on top of this prison and it looks so interesting, which I, I think it, it doesn't even seem like a prison. It seems like more more of like more of like a boarding school or something. <laughs> right. But it is, and, it, and the shot is sweeping. I think it was on, it must have been like on a helicopter or something. I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: I actually know uh, because Darabont talked about the scene and he talked about it. And actually that was, a, it was an actual prison. Okay. It was an actual prison. Uh, it was derelict and they apparently had to do so much work in it because it looked like it was just nasty. Inside. It was incredibly nasty inside. And a lot of the administrative building, the sort of castle-looking building, still exists, Mm -hmm. but all the other stuff is gone. Okay. Um, I think the prison is still there, but they don't use that building for a lot of the stuff they used to. Anyway... Uh, Darabont talked about this shot and he mentioned it because he he was talking about, as a director, the importance of collaborating with other people, listening to the people who you're working with and trusting them. Because he said the idea for that shot came from, I believe it was the location guy. Oh, wow. The guy who found the location was showing them and he said, and he looked at me and he said, just imagine a shot coming over the top of this. And showing the back and he said he said that's where the, sh- the idea for this shot came from and he, and he was just again he was just talking about the importance of collaborating and you know mm-hmm. why you you can't do it all
0: yeah that, that I, this is one of my favorite shots of the entire film yeah. for sure so the new inmates come in and they kind of get started the bus stops uh we see clancy brown hadley captain hadley very briefly as he's kind of like getting the prisoners off of the bus red and his group of like you know veteran inmates uh they're making bets on people and we're just we're not really sure exactly at this moment like what are you betting on right but they're betting on each person and red picks tim robbins
2: i must admit i didn't think much of andy first time i laid eyes on him looked like a stiff breeze would blow him over that was my first impression of the man
0: and we, we do find out that they're placing bets on who's going to break first, basically. Like, who's going to break down and cry or, you know, flip out or something. Because everybody, at least one person will will uh, on the first night. Because you'll see the, the other inmates go fishing for it, is what they call it. Right. But another shot that I really want to point out is as Andy enters the prison, there is a really good shot of... It's, a, it's kind of like a point of view shot, a POV, that's looking up at, like almost like the castley, kind of like the windows right. of the, the big, tall building. And as he's walking in, it just kind of keeps tilting up and tilting up and kind of like going up and up to the sky until it gets covered by black. And now you've entered Shawshank prison. So like you, you get the sky and you get like this huge building that you're looking into. And then it gets covered by black once you kind of get inside the building. Mm-hmm. And it just, to me, it just, it really shows you're in fucking prison now. Yeah and Shawshank is going to be hard and it's going to be black it's going to be cold and this is where you are now Mm -hmm. and I I just really think that that shot helps encapsulate that
1: yeah it's a great transition
0: now we we meet Warden Norton who's kind of addressing the new inmates we get a little better meeting with Captain Hadley one inmate makes the terrible decision of asking a question about when do they eat and we get a really good line from Hadley
1: you eat when we say you eat
2: shit when we say you shit and you piss when we say you piss you got that you maggot dick motherfucker
0: and then he hits him with his billy club and he's a very violent person yes hadley's got some of the best random lines like some of these (laughs) he calls people some weird fucking names and i love it yeah it's great It is. But we're just, now we're starting to get an idea of who Hadley and who Warden Norton are, that they're hard and they're not going to take anything from the prisoners. The new inmates, you know, they kind of get, they get stripped and de-loused with this powder shit and they have to walk uh, their new clothes and everything to their, where their cells are, where they're going to be living. Uh, Here we kind of get the context from Ned's, from Red's narration that, you know the other inmates are going to go fishing that they're going to keep poking at them until someone goes crazy and the person that haywood decided to bet on is this fat guy Uh, he calls him fat ass he ends up and everybody else ends up kind of pushing this fat guy over the edge and he starts basically crying and whining and hadley comes in again we get one of those awesome hadley lines
2: what is your malfunction You you fat barrel of monkey spunk
0: I love that line. I I it's not one of my most quoted lines, but it's a line that I say as often as I can. <laughs> if I can find the if I can find the context to say what's your malfunction you fat barrel of monkey spunk, I will say it. Um Hadley beats the living shit out of this fat guy. We really kind of see the darkness of Shawshank right there of the the evilness of Hadley, of the danger yeah. that these prisoners are in being in this in this place and you also see the power that
1: Hadley has because the second his foot hits the floor everyone in the prison shuts the fuck up true none of them want to cross him
0: yeah of course not because they
1: know what he's capable of
0: yeah and he can fuck up I mean he has the power to beat and pretty much kill anyone in the prison yeah and it's very dangerous and I'll go ahead and ask or say this now I, I think Captain Hadley is he's one of my I don't know it's, it's weird to use the word favorite. <laughs> But he's one of my favorite villains mm-hmm. of all time. Like you know, he's he's not gonna be as big as your Darth Vaders. Right. He's not gonna be as big as your Jokers. But I think Captain Hadley is a an incredibly underrated movie villain. I think he he's uh, he's the performance is powerful and he's intimidation. And yes, he's one dimensional, but he's scary as fuck. Yep. I would not want to deal with him.
1: I agree. See, this just makes me want to do another uh, top ten episode where we just talk (laughs) about our favorite just movie villains and heroes doesn't have to be comic books
0: yeah yeah maybe maybe one day (laughs) we are at breakfast the next morning andy sits kind of near this group of people with red and haywood and brooks he finds a maggot in his morning gruel or oatmeal or whatever yeah this old man who you know we know as brooks but he asks andy are you gonna eat that and i distinctly remember the first time i see this film and this is the way they play it up yes. which is fantastic it's like holy shit is this old man going to eat this goddamn maggot <laughs> are things so fucking bad in this prison that eating a maggot is like a good thing you're you're a little bit like oh god this is a fucked up place or that's a fucked up old guy right. or something even the look
1: the look on andy's
0: face says the exact same thing yeah <laughs> yeah Andy ends up giving him the maggot and it's a kind of a cute bait and switch where he takes the maggot and he ends up feeding it to this bird. He has a little cute little like crow in his pocket uh, that he's named Jake. And it's just, we get uh, that humanity from Brooks very early on. We get, like what a nice guy he is, yeah. and we, and instantly, you know, when we, when he doesn't eat the maggot himself and he gives it to a little baby bird that he's taking care of, we instantly like Brooks.
1: There's a funny story Darabont tells about this in the uh, in the director's commentary. So because they had the baby bird and the crow later on, they had to involve Peta. Mm. So for that maggot, they just went down to a bait shop. Well, apparently, Peta was insistent that they not feed a live maggot. To the bird, it had to be a maggot that died of natural causes. <laughs> God damn it, and Peter! He was—he said he was just—he was arguing with this woman like, "We got it at a bait shop at a place where these uh, these worms are going to be hooked and thrown into the river as food." And she was still insistent that it had to be a maggot that died of natural causes.
0: <laughs> I don't understand some of their stuff, and I never will. Yeah, but they've got their thing. Good for them. But Haywood comes in to breakfast and he's collecting all his winnings because his fat ass horse won the night. Um, But he hears that the guy died from the beating. Basically, there wasn't a medical team on staff right at the moment or overnight. And so the fat guy ended up dying from his injuries. And I will say the guy, Andy, at this point, asks everybody what was his name. And I think this is an important aspect for Andy because it really shows Andy's humanity yeah he he sees people as people and not as like you know their numbers or not as just other inmates or fish or fat asses or whatever he sees people as people I do find it interesting we never get that guy's name he's credited as fat ass in the film yeah but that's an important trait for Andy is that he doesn't give up hope and we'll come back to hope you know it's a big uh, aspect of this film one of like the, the main themes of the film is hope right and I think Andy's humanity and Andy's hope for humanity is what keeps him going in this in this film yeah we next get a shower scene where andy's cleaning himself and we meet boggs and you know these these the sisters is that where we come to hear of them and they're this group and boggs being a particularly evil one-sided guy yeah there is, I'm sure, more to his story. You know, like he could have been someone who dealt with a lot of shit right. before. You know, when he went to prison, and you know, the, what what turned Boggs into Boggs? It could be a very could be a very interesting thing, but we see we only see his story through what you know Red knows from what Andy told him, basically, or what he has seen. And Boggs is a pure evil guy. He's a basically in this group of very aggressive homosexuals who rape other prisoners. Yep. And the guy who plays Boggs... Fuck, I can't remember his name. Mark Rolston. Mark Rolston, okay. He does a great job. Like, I hate Boggs. Yes. I'm glad what happens to him when when it comes later. Yeah. Honestly. It makes me happy, and I feel it's justified, So, um, which we'll get to it.
1: And Mark Rolston is also famous for another role in a movie that we'll probably cover at some point. It was funny, because actually Darabont said that he kind of picked him because of his role in this movie. He's Drake in the movie Aliens. He's the other smart gunner.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I forgot. Oh my god. I I don't think I've ever really you made that connection. Made that Yeah. That's awesome. He's cool. I like that man. I like him. <laughs> I like him as Drake. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. He actually has about the same demeanor in both movies. It's just that one of them he's a bad guy and the other one he's a good guy. But he's he's still an asshole in both of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, very true. We're going to jump ahead. A month. There's actually there's a lot of jumping ahead mm-hmm. in this film. You know, you don't see which is actually it works out just fine. You know, it's prison and it they're trying to span a shit ton of time over a very short period. The narration by Morgan Freeman uh, helps a lot with it. You know, you can just as an audience we can just follow him very very easily with this is what happens. Yeah, and you know here we are now. So we're kind of. A month ahead in the timeline, and Andy reaches out to Red. Basically, we get a setup that he wants a rock hammer, and so he can kind of shape and sculpture rocks, a hobby that he used to have when he was not in prison. It's good. You know, we get good plants in this film mm-hmm. and the rock hammer kind of getting that early on uh, is is very important. Uh, Red's kind of worried that Andy might use it as a weapon. He might actually try to attack Boggs or the other sisters with it. And we get a, a line that I've always liked. I always thought this was a very good and important line where Andy says,
2: I don't suppose it would help any if I explained to them I'm not homosexual.
0: And Red says,
2: Neither are they. They have to be human first. They don't qualify. And I've always <laughs> thought
0: that was a really good good line yeah. because in their minds the sisters and bogs are not humans they're monsters yep. they're just straight up monsters and that's that's how we see them that is exactly who they are and they're awful people yeah but also he kind of like makes a comment of All right, I su- i suppose you want to dig out of prison with that uh with that rock hammer and andy just kind of like laughs and is like no way you'll see what i mean when you get it that'll come back later yep. at this point now they're starting to build their friendship and their friendship is this is the very inkling of them like introducing each other uh even at the end of it they mention their names to each other and red says oh i'm, I'm red why do you why do they call you red and he's like maybe it's because i'm irish and i i always love that line because morgan Freeman's not irish but i know the character in the book was originally like a white irish guy
1: yes he was and that line is in the book
0: oh the... <laughs>
1: he, he just kept it
0: that's awesome it works so well because it turns like into like a joke for the film but you know, it ties in to people who know the book at all, mm-hmm. and it just it just works really well. Yeah. So we now get like kind of through a series of events. Uh, Red gets the rock hammer. He finally gets the joke that, you know, oh yeah, it would take six hundred years to tunnel underneath the wall with one of these little miniature pickaxe-looking things, mm-hmm. but they're just kind of tiny. So it's like, oh yeah, there's no way that's gonna happen. And so he gives Andy the hammer. Here we get a somewhat a pretty disturbing scene of Andy having to go get some more detergent. For his laundry duties. And here we're running into Boggs and the sisters who end up beating the shit out of Andy. We just get this kind of like a low point in Andy's life pretty quickly in prison. Through some narration, we just kind of see how shitty his life is. It's becoming routine where he just has to like defend himself from these guys and just kind of like do the same shit over and over again. So it gets pretty bad. But the first inkling that, you know, he can start to better his life. Is there's an outdoor detail? They have to retar a roof. Red, with his, all of his connections, he gets him and his friends onto the detail because yep. he's just uh, he's an important guy. I, I do like that. They keep emphasizing how important Red is in the prison. Yeah. While they're doing their tarring, we get captain hadley talking about you know uh, his brother died and he gets some he's gonna get some uh some money like thirty five thousand dollars that was left to him but he's all like fucking uncle sam damn it they're all they're they're gonna take all my money which i thought was kind of funny because i imagine it's probably a public prison and he gets paid by taxes and shit like that and he's just bitching about (laughs) how how the government's going to be taking taxes from his money and shit like that. Right. But Andy, being the, you know, banker, very intelligent person that he is, but he's also somewhat stupid <laughs> at times. <laughs> but, so he just, like, walks up to Hadley, who one of the other guards almost blows his fucking head off with a shotgun. Right. You know, I, I think most guards would probably not even hesitate and just shoot a guy for doing that. Right. The first thing that Andy says to Captain Hadley is,
2: Do you trust your wife? <laughs> oh, that's funny. You're going to look funnier sucking my dick with no teeth. What I mean is, do you think she'd go behind your back, try to hamstring you?
0: Holy shit, what a dumb fucking comment (laughs) to the most brutal guard in Shawshank. And Hadley just about throws Andy off the fucking roof when Andy backtracks a little bit and is like, well, if you you trust your wife, you can keep all of that money. And so basically he tells him about, you know, there is this fully legal way for Hadley to give a gift to his wife that the government can't tax and he will get to keep all of it you know as long as you know the wife ends up sharing the money with him um, which you know i would I would like to think my wife would share that kind of money <laughs> with me I'd like to think so
1: that shot I love first of all I love the shot of Hadley taking him to the edge because you see over the edge of the roof you see the people on the floor and then it kind of tilts down and into like a 50-50 shot of the two of them. Mm-hmm. And Darabont wanted them to do it because he wanted, when when the camera came down, he wanted them to finish the scene. He didn't want it to be stunt people and him have to cut. So this is actually some CG. Oh. At first I thought that, when he mentioned this, at first I thought he meant that the, the background was CG. No, they're wearing harnesses. So oh, okay. That's an actual shot. They are on a roof, but they have a harness that's keeping them from going over. And the harness was CG'd out. He wanted it all done in one shot.
0: No, it looks very good. It's very um, dramatic because you kind of get the feel like Hadley could just throw him off and you're going to see Andy fall the entire way and splat where these other prisoners are kind of looking up. So it's good. But Andy kind of talks his way out of it and he does so by basically saying Hadley can keep all the money and he'll only do it for a small price of three beers a piece for his co-workers, (laughs) his other inmates on the roof. Uh, This is... This is an absolutely fantastic scene and one of the scenes that is probably one of my favorites in the film. Um, this whole st- the entire roof setup of Andy getting the beers for the guys and then the guys drinking the beer, there's really good hopeful kind of music in the background. Yeah. It's a, a real it's a scene of humanity in the shitty life of prison.
1: Yeah it's it's weird because it's like the one well not the one but yeah I'd say kind of the one moment of humanity out of Hadley.
0: Well, th- we, there will be another one. Well, it's not humanity, but we'll come back. Hadley has like, he Hadley is, is a little bit more interesting. He's definitely, he's getting something out of it for sure. Yes, yes.
1: But, I mean, he could have just threatened Andy to say like, well, you show me or I'll make sure you have an accident or something like that. And actually, Yeah. But actually just gives, gets him the beers. So yeah. th- this is, I think, his most humane scene in the entire movie.
0: Yeah, I mean the way that Red puts it—the colossal prick even managed to sound
2: magnanimous.
0: Which I, I had to look up what that word means. Uh, it means very generous or forgiving, especially toward a rival or someone less powerful than oneself. Right. I did not know what magnanimous, but it is—it is definitely Hadley's Hadley's nicest moment.
1: Yeah, cuz I think I know the other scene you're talking about and to me that seems like something that maybe the warden had him do, not something that he did on his own.
0: Mm, we'll talk we'll we'll discuss okay. cuz when I get there I don't think so. I think I think Hadley did it himself because of this moment. Okay. That's that's why I think. Okay, that's fair. So, for anybody who doesn't know, we'll we'll get to it soon. <laughs> <laughs> but Andy and Red are now in the yard and they're talking about chess and Andy wants to Get pieces uh, of rock for making like a chessboard. You mm-hmm. know, he, he loves and they kind of have a chat here. We get multiple scenes of like them talking and become building up their friendship and their friendship is so important in this film. Like when it comes down to it, this film is about relationships Yeah, and it's about really their bromance if you will you can call it a bromance movie but it is really about it's a buddy picture yeah. in my opinion this film is ultimately when it's stripped down it's you had to go through so much shit together and you did it with a friend, and your bond is, is kind of what comes out of the the crap of Shawshank Prison. So we're building their friendship. We're talking about the rocks and uh, Red, and them discuss why Andy's in there. Say you know he's innocent, and it's it's a running a run, another running joke in the film that everyone in Shawshank is innocent. You ask him why are you put in here, they all say that they're innocent. Mm-hmm. Just kind of funny. hey Heywood always says uh, the lawyer fucked him, and it's just <laughs> kind of funny. But Red. Uh, Is guilty and he calls himself the only guilty man in Shawshank, and we just get a little bit about his character. You know, he is an honest person. It's something that we I like about Red a lot is he doesn't really bullshit you. Yeah, and so I think it's pretty important to him. At night, Andy is shaping a rock, and he kind of sees these different names in his cell. Like some people, you know, have used some kind of object and like you know written their name in their cells, and so Andy starts kind of carving his own name into the side of the wall and we kind of cut to then he immediately goes to a movie theater to ask red for a poster of rita hayworth it all flows very well of course we're gonna we're gonna come back to this specific moment later right but it works really well and at the at the time me as an audience member would have no idea what's going on right you know i, I would just think okay yeah he, he was carving his name into a wall and then uh, he wants a picture, a poster of Rita Hayworth, who is, you know, big bombshell. And they're even like showing one of her movies at the movie theater, which, uh, which kind of ties, it ties all in very well. Yeah. But as Andy is at the projection area or at the movie theater, the, the sisters come and attack him. We have a very, very dark, but interesting scene of, and a good back and forth, honestly, mm-hmm. between Boggs and Andy uh, he's got, like, this shiv in his in his hand, and he wants Andy to suck his dick, and then he's like, if you put anything in there, I'm going to fucking bite it off, basically. Boggs, you know, has a has a good line of, of, you know, it's like,
2: You do that, and I'll put all eight inches of the steel in your ear.
0: And Andy has a fantastic line. I absolutely love his comeback.
2: Yeah. But you should know that sudden serious brain injury causes the victim to bite down hard. In fact, I hear the bite reflex is so strong. Have to pry the victim's jaws open with a crowbar.
0: (laughs) And and, and basically saying, yeah, yeah, if he puts, if he stabs him in the brain, he's losing his dick. That's for damn sure. Yep. Boggs asks him, where does, you know, where does he learn this kind of shit? And Andy says,
2: I read it. Not a read. You ignorant fuck.
0: And I just, yeah, I really, I like the way Andy stands up to them. Um, And he out, you know, he always, he seems protective of himself, but he's not like, Even though he's like, you know, making fun of the guys for being stupid, I don't feel like he is ever showing that he's above them. He's just like protecting himself. Yeah. You definitely feel for Andy in this moment because the guys beat the other living crap out of him. Um, As opposed to to raping him, they beat the shit out of him. And he is basically in the infirmary for like a month during this period. And Boggs gets a week in the hole. And this is the first time that we actually hear about the hole, which is just this spot of isolation, basically. It's There's darkness. There's nothing in there. Uh, you have no idea what's going on. I don't
1: think you can stand up either. I think you're... It's like... It's a box.
0: Yeah, it looks like... Because, yeah, they're always like in like a sitting position when they're in there. So, yeah, I don't think you can stand either. Yeah. So, it's a shitty spot to be in uh, where they probably put just like people who, have, who need separate shit. Yeah. Yeah, that little bit of isolation that they get in there. It's like, you know... It's prison for prisoners. <laughs> Here's that scene that John and I were talking about is when Boggs gets out of the hole and goes back to his cell... Hadley is there and Hadley beats the fucking shit out of Boggs with his billy club. Yeah. And he breaks his jaw and he's apparently gets like paralyzed. We kind of hear about this narration from Red that Boggs never ate hard food again and he he never uh, walked again. Yeah. And you get that terrifying. It's a terrifying scene of
1: you see Boggs flop out of the room and then him trying to grab onto the grate and just being dragged back into the cell.
0: It was very like. Thriller horror esque kind of shot, and you've seen it like, you know, in other things where yeah, you know, a creature grabs someone and they get pulled. Very same kind of thing, and it's like on, on this profile shot, and it works really well because you don't feel for Boggs, but you you do see the power of Hadley in this moment that he can just fucking destroy you. As as someone as we just saw Boggs beat the crap out of Andy multiple times, and how dangerous of a man he is. Well, even Boggs ain't shit. To Hadley right and that that scary shot right there helps convey that it's actually I think it's the one time you actually root for Hadley you do you <laughs> root for Hadley and it, and you're like hey, yeah and that's why I, I kind of think it's you know it's not really the other moment of Hadley being nice but there's a little bit of humanity in there because I feel Hadley is protecting Andy a little bit you know he's kind of paying him back for what Andy did for Hadley and th- getting that money this is Hadley kind of paying Andy back a little bit more and beating the shit out of Boggs because of it. So I don't I don't think it was something that the warden did because we haven't really had any inter- interaction with Andy and the Warden yet. Yeah, you're probably right. I think this was Hadley basically showing, you know, a little bit of hey, don't fuck with my people. Right. And you know, and in this mo- and as much as Andy can be Hadley's people, right in this spot, he kind of is.
1: Okay. That's fine. I'll buy
0: that. Yeah, he's. it's almost like he's doing Andy, you know, a favor. Right. But in a very gruesome and uh, intimidating and dark way of beating someone to uh, paralyzation. But you know what? I'm glad Boggs got fucking out. And he's out of the story, actually, now for, for the rest of it. Yeah. Um, Boggs is gone, and he kind of went to a different prison, so... I'm actually kind of glad that that storyline's done. Red wants to get Andy some uh, some rocks that kind of has a present for when he gets out of the infirmary. And we get a funny scene. I just, I always, <laughs> I want to mention that, that Haywood picks up a rock that he thinks is a rock. It ends up being a horse turd. And it's just, uh, it's funny. I don't know what it is. I, <laughs> I always laugh at that scene. I always love that scene.
1: Haywood gets poked fun of in different yeah. ways in this film. <laughs> it's just kind of he is i'm not going to go so far as to call him the comic relief Mm -hmm. um, but he is kind of the he ends up being the butt of a lot of jokes
0: yeah (laughs) yeah
1: either either visual or you know through dialogue
0: and when andy returns from the infirmary he has some rocks and he has the poster the rita hayworth poster that he was wanting Mm -hmm. and next we get a scene of Tossing the cells. This is a, a thing that they kind of mentioned earlier that happens kind of at random, where the guards will kind of throw around everything, anything in your room to make sure you have no contraband and you know no weapons or anything like mm-hmm. that. We see Andy reading a Bible, and this is a fantastic plant yep. in the film. The way that the way that they put this Bible in here now uh, is absolutely fantastic. We see him reading it when they're tossing his cell. The warden comes, and basically this is uh, a way that the warden you know wants to size Andy up. He just kind of wants to meet the guy. I think Hadley had probably been telling him about, you know, what he did for him, how smart he is. And that kind of word just kind of gets around. Right. The warden, who is a godly man, ends up grabbing the Bible. And they kind of have some, you know, they talk of some verses back and forth.
1: Let's be honest. He says he's a godly man. I don't actually (laughs) believe he's a godly man. I think it's just show that he puts on.
0: Well, I think he he probably believes in God and... Says he's a godly man, but he doesn't. He doesn't practice no. anything properly. No, he he knows his verses, and he's he's an Old Testament kind of guy. Yeah. I don't think I don't think he believes in the New Testament all that well, which is like the better shit, like the real humanity part of it. I think Warden Norton like stopped reading before the New Testament and was just like, oh, that's the God I like. <laughs> I like the one that, you know, fucking kills all of Job's sons and forces him to still love God and shit. He likes he likes yeah. the the dark side of God.
1: <laughs> Destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah.
0: Really what the warden wants is Andy to do some work for him, mm-hmm. basically, to, to use his intelligence for the betterment of the warden. Uh, he ends up giving the Bible back just as you don't think, you know, he, he walks out and this is, this is important for later, right? This, this is why this film is so good rewatching. Yep. You don't get a lot of this stuff like these, there's some subtleties that you do not get unless you watch it multiple times. Yep, And the thing like this Bible just being handed back to Andy right at this moment, it, it becomes such an important thing because we know later that's where he hid the rock hammer.
2: Yeah.
1: And what the warden says to him it's very poignant because he hands it. He hands it back to him. He goes.
2: I almost forgot. I'd hate to deprive you of this. Salvation lies within.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. There's so there's those little things, and that, that happens in multiple spots. Yeah. You're not gonna remember. You know, at the end where you get the the realization, or you get like that that shot of opening the Bible and you see the rock hammer, you know, cut out it within side. You don't go back and immediately like remember this scene right. and remember like what was said. It's from multiple viewings that you get that and you're just like, oh shit, that's smart. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of intelligence in the writing of this film. Yeah, it's just it's just partly why it's become part of my favorite because I, you pick up on more and more of those little things. Yep. So, so Andy gets assigned to the library pretty much just so he can spend his time fixing numbers, doing accounting for prisoners. We meet Brooks a little bit more. And we kind of also get Andy, like, doing accounting for all the prisoners in Shawshank and other guards, even, and whatnot. It's just kind of funny. It's, uh, you know, one of the more uplifting spots. Things are getting better for Andy right now. Right. Andy wants to use his kind of new influence. You know, he's starting to connect with the guards a little bit. He's starting to, like, the, you know, the, the warden's starting to trust him with some more and more stuff. He wants to improve the library. Uh, just a little setup that, you know, the warden doesn't give him any funds but Andy decides he will write letters to the state right? and he try to get state funds. So that'll that'll come back in a little bit, but I always I like that, you know. It it, it also helps show the persistence of Andy and that this it shows this place still hasn't broken him. Yeah. You know, he he cares about art and you know literature and everything like that and he's not broken. Yeah. And and I, and I like that.
1: Also, what else is he going to do? He's in prison.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got a shit ton of time. <laughs> then get a scene of brooks brooks has gone fucking nuts and he has a knife at Haywood's throat they're like holy shit has he gone crazy what the fuck's going on with brooks he's like crying and he says this line it's the only way they'd let me stay and apparently brooks got parole mm-hmm. and here you start to see what Red calls institutionalized, and you kind of really start to see what this place does to people. Yeah, when when they're there for that long, because you know you have someone like Andy who's still persistent, pretty vibrant, and he's definitely still has his humanity. And Brooks, who is a super nice and sweet guy, but Brooks is lost without this prison. And this is this is what we get. Mm-hmm. We kind of get a little scene of the guys talking about it in the yard and you know we hear about the institutionalized we we get an absolutely amazing line from red that that kind of sums it all up that says
2: they send you here for life that's exactly what they take
0: that's an important line because you know we're gonna see a lot of parallels between brooks and red later at at least at the beginning at one point and then red goes off but it's an important setup seeing brooks's story here because we will get it set side by side with Red's story in a little bit later. We now have a, just a little, I don't want to call it like an interlude, but it's very interesting. We get just this little short story within the film right. about Brooks. And I absolutely love this section of the film. It is so tough. Very emotional scene. We get So Brooks, he sets Jake free, the bird. You know he's he's off. It's sad because we know that Bird was Brooks's only his 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 best friend. Yeah. And so now not only is he leaving the only home that he's known for like 60 years or whatever right. it was or 50 years, he lost his best friend, and we get his story. Now mm. we we are solely only getting Brooks story, and it's it's kind of interesting. It's a letter from Brooks that he wrote the guys, but it's not Red narrating it. We're getting it from Brooks voice, so we're getting brooks's narration which i thought i always thought was very interesting and i think was a was a very good choice because the rest of the film is only told through red's narration right but instead here we're getting this little section that is all about brooks and we're getting it in his own voice
1: yeah you can make the argument I and mean, it is it's red is reading brooks's letter and in his head he's hearing brooks yeah say these words that have that he's written down and but it is a little unusual cuz up until uh, up until this point and from the rest on out we only get red as the narrator but i think it is Im- it's kind of important to set up what happens towards the end of the movie yeah. it's not as important of a setup but it's such a great emotional moment that i'm glad they left it in
0: yes absolutely we get yeah we get brooks's little story you know it, this is a really sad and emotional part of the film he doesn't know how the world works anymore. He's only been in prison. He's working at like this grocery store and he sees all these cars and he's just way behind and he doesn't know what to do. And pretty, and at the end of this letter and then the end of the story, he's in this halfway house and he ends up hanging himself. Mm-hmm. He carves his name like in the banister before he did it, you know, it, and a lot of these set stuff the setups, like it comes back to us and it seems a little unbelievable, you know, like we're gonna get Red eventually going into that same halfway house, and it's just like, wow, that's a little bit convenient, but at the same time, it works so well because we see the emotion yeah. in this scene that it's just like, oh holy shit, you think the same thing's gonna happen to Red later. Right. It's so good. And this this scene almost almost always makes me cry, or at least get welled up. Yeah. Because you feel for Brooks so much that he he just can't make it in this world that he has to hang himself. I love this shot of you just get Brooks's feet yeah. and like the table that he's standing on and we don't want to see anything else. You actually get you get a little bit of a mirror with a little bit of like a silhouette of what Brooks is doing a little bit. Right. The act of seeing just the feet and then him kicking the table out from under himself and hanging there, it's a powerful shot. It's a powerful scene. It one that really hits me and it's it's one that makes me weirdly it makes me love this movie more yeah. because you get you get everything in this film. Mm-hmm. I like films that make me feel stuff, right. and it, it can make me feel happy. It can make me feel sad. It can make me feel whatever. And the movies that can do as much of those feelings all together within the two hours or whatever, right? It means I'm gonna like your movie more. And this film right here is hitting so many different parts.
1: And this is a and this is a long movie. I mean, it's about two hours and twenty minutes. So. There's a lot going on in here. And, you know, I mean, you could have made the case to cut this scene for time.
0: But it's, yeah, no, I mean, it's so important to, to writing up the parallels for, for Red later. That I mean, you, granted, you could you could cut that as well, but it, it just, it takes away from the emotion of the film. Right.
1: And I hate I I kind of hate the term emotional roller coaster, (laughs) but the film does do a good job of pulling you in one direction and then in the other and then in back to the middle and that is something that I like in good films you know and sometimes sometimes I just want to see a movie that makes me laugh all the way through and it's all comedy very rarely do I see a movie that one makes me cry all the way through Mm -hmm. but those good movies take you in all different kinds of directions
0: sometimes all at once. That's definitely what we're getting here. So Brooks is dead, but now we're, we're going to cut back to the prison. We get a happy moment now, right? <laughs> Where we just had one of our more intense ones. And now we're getting all these books and things were sent to Andy because of his letter campaign. Uh, apparently we've had six years pass uh, <laughs> in the time that he started sending those letters. Uh, but we, we had, I went through some montages and some other stuff. And so it kind of makes sense. But one thing that Andy also gets is a record player and some records and while this guard is taking a shit I mean Andy locks him into the into the bathroom and he starts playing the marriage of Figaro the opera Mm -hmm. he's he ends up putting it over the loudspeaker Here we get another another emotional scene, but it's a different emotion. So we had a lot of sad, and we were feeling very sorry for Brooks and what he was going through and having to just deal with the sympathy of that old man dying. But now I'm getting all swelled up with emotion again. Much like the swelling of the music, we're getting this powerful music going over the entire prison as Andy puts the record over the loudspeaker for the entire prison to hear. And we're getting these shots of everyone in the prison looking to the speakers and stopping what they're doing and getting just this moment of, I mean, it feels like a, like a moment of humanity Mm -hmm. in the prison. Again, we get these little spots of here, you know, where you get, you know, you get a lot of inhumanity with like Hadley or the warden being evil. And then some moments of really good shit that make you feel good and hopeful. And this is one of those hopeful moments. And I, This is a spot that has absolutely made me cry before because I just, I feel so swelled up with emotion. Partly it's because I probably was dragged through a sadness with Brooks right before this, like literally like two minutes before this. Right. And then now you're getting this hopeful swelling and the beauty of the opera and like what all of these prisoners must be feeling at this moment. And it's, it's a beautifully done scene. And you get some really good shots of just like the entire yard stopping and, and listening to the speakers so
1: i like that uh, the borden gets to the door and tells him to shut it off and he leans over and you think he's gonna turn it off and he
0: turns the volume up <laughs> yeah he does yeah he's got he's got a streak of uh like you know defiance in him apparently that was tim robbins idea oh nice was he was he going to stop it
1: <laughs> i know maybe that's what it was Is he was going to do it and he said what if we just just for that little extra you just turn it up i like that you don't see what happens they finally they break the glass they get in the door all you hear is sort of the classic retro- record screech and then hadley saying on your feet and then that's it and then we, so we don't see what happens after that which is good because we know that andy's got some shit coming to him but we don't need to see it
0: yeah I like there's a a, some moment it's exactly in that moment you talked about where he turn ends up turning up the record. It's a a little bit of really good facial acting, where (laughs) the warden basically you know he he comes up and he's like, hey you turn this shit off we're gonna stop you and you see in in Andy's face he's like oh shit maybe I should turn this off and he's like okay I, I should probably do it and then he ends up. And he's like, no, fuck it. And then he gets his (laughs) eyes wide and he turns it up and he gets like real excited about that. And then steps Hadley to the front of the door with the window. And you see like just in Andy's face, oh, fuck, I'm going to get fucked for this. <laughs> and you see all of that without any words from Andy at all. Right. And it works really good. Tim Robbins did, I think, really good of like of that acting.
1: Yeah. He has a, a very sort of st- almost stoic face through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim Robbins said that he played the character, he wanted him to always look like he had a secret.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: he was always trying to make it look like Andy had some kind of secret, which we know he does. Yeah. Yeah. That's not something we we find out until the end of the film.
0: Apparently, Andy got two weeks in the hole for that stunt, which we know uh, Boggs only got one week for beating the shit out of Andy. So, but playing playing an opera gets you two weeks, apparently. (laughs) But I guess it's because you know he defied the warden, right? And probably probably would have gotten one week, and then he turned that, and then he ended up turning (laughs) it up. That that extra turn up probably gave him an extra week. Yeah, but we're gonna jump to Andy being out of the hole and he kind of talks about the beauty of music mm-hmm. to the other prisoners to Red and that and the whole group and it's still is another plant of you know he Andy it shows his hope you know he's got hope for freedom he's got uh, a, a lot uh, he sees outside of the walls yeah. where other inmates can't Right, and they are or they're, or they or they've lost that anyway
1: I like. I've always liked Haywood's line of. They asked him how he did it, and he said it was the easiest time he ever did because he had Mr. Mozart to keep him company. And Haywood's like, "They let you uh, tote that record player down there, huh?" And he's
0: serious. He's not joking. That's seriously what he's asking. But like, no. I mean, music. You can you can take it with you. You can take it anywhere you go, and it'll help you because it's in your brain. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. It's something
1: they can't take away from you.
0: So now we cut to another parole hearing from Red, uh, very similar to that very first one. So that now we're at. 30 years uh, of mm-hmm. Red being in prison, 10 years of Andy being there. Very interesting for us as an audience. We're seeing we see Red do the the exact same speech that he did at the very beginning of the film. You know, right now we're pretty much like right in the middle of the film. It's it's interesting because it's the same, but it's slightly different. It sounds a little bit more defeated. Yeah. You know, where where before, you know, you could tell Red was bullshitting the people and just being like, oh, I'm totally reformed. Yes, sir. You know, he's putting on an act. This one, it's the exact same words, but it's just slightly different enough that you're like, all right, you're saying the same shit. You're slightly less. Yeah. You are slightly less of a person than you were before.
1: He doesn't believe what he's saying.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. He still doesn't believe. So he gets, and he gets rejected again, but it's a good setup for, you know, the the last hearing that we'll get later in the film. One thing that Andy had said earlier that he, was going to write two letters a week to try and get even more funding from the state for the library, ends up paying off. And now we get a whole shit ton of books and stuff going to Andy for really improving the library. We get a very funny scene of them talking about uh, and putting books into different sections. Uh, I think it's Haywood or somebody pulls up uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, which is The Count of Monte Cristo, <laughs> which is, I think, a fantastic little scene. It's it's actually one that we John and I discussed possibly casting just because of pretty much for the scene it, that it, it ties in with Shawshank Redemption as opposed to doing real-life prisoners. We discussed, oh, should we cast The Count of Monte Cristo instead, mm-hmm. which is about a prison break. It, it's It's a good plant that you know that book is a really good plant for what happens later on in the film. Here we get uh the warden uh, institutes, you know, this labor initiative uh and we're we're starting to really see, you know, we've known that the warden is an asshole and that he's kind of dirty, but here we're starting to see kind of like the corruptness of the warden and he's really getting Andy to do, you know, he's laundering his money to get like that dirty money making it clean. So the warden will have a fuck ton of it when he retires. Mm -hmm. And we're just, yeah, we just get some of that, that set up. We see Andy kind of explains it all to red about what he's doing. And he tells us about his silent, silent partner, this guy, Randall Stevens, That Andy just kind of made up that he has all these like, you know, actual government documents. Pretty much Andy did like the OG catfishing back in the day. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much what he did. Definitely helps set us up. A lot of the things in the film just tie in. It's really, really good writing. We kind of just get a little set up here that Andy, you know, has gotten more and more freedoms in the prison because uh, he's he's helps people kind of get their GEDs. Now in comes Tommy. This cocky fucking new inmate. He's kind of fun. You know, he's kind of like very like a 50s T-Bird style kind of guy. Yeah, (laughs) He's fun and he wants to get his GED. It's just kind of funny because he doesn't know how to read. (laughs) And so we get Andy, you know, he's got a new project to work on. Really, because there's so much time in prison, you know, you need projects to work on. And he worked on the library and he got that up. And now he's going to be helping Tommy learn how to read and get his GED. And we just move kind of quickly through some stuff with uh, some narration from Red. Tommy ends up taking the test, a funny scene where he's pissed off at the at the test and, and he's stressed out about it. He ends up like throwing it in the trash, but Andy picks it up and ends up uh, sending it in, which is, you know, very Andy thing to do. Andy very much, he even looks like a professor, even has like the glasses on. He just yeah. needs like a, a coat with like the elbow patches right. and yeah, he'd be... <laughs> Right, it'd definitely be Professor Andy. <laughs> what that sets up is Tommy goes to talk to Red, basically about you know how he's sure Andy is disappointed in him. He asks Red like why is Andy even in prison? And so Red tells him about you know oh, it's oh it's murder. He's in here just you know just like a lot of us you know because we, we killed people. And he tells him the story, and and Tommy's face is, is like ghost white blank. Yeah, because he's he's like a kid, but he's been in in and out of prison like all over. Tommy then tells them about the story of elmo blatch who is like this creepy thief killer guy who apparently was telling tommy a story about how he killed this golf pro and this wife who was cheating on a husband and they ended up pinning it on the husband instead instead of elmo this right here is the first spot that the audience 100% knows now that andy didn't do it mm mm-hmm. which which is kind of interesting because it's hard to say because I've seen this movie so many times that I know he's innocent. I can't remember if I had like an aha moment of like, or not aha, but, but I had like a, Oh my God, he's actually innocent. Right. Or did I kind of like already believe him because you like Andy a lot in the film. And so it's like, did I actually kind of already believe he was innocent before this? But like, this is really what sinks it in. And it's just, I think it's, pretty interesting because they do they do a good job of hiding his innocence previously Mm -hmm. but now we actually have the truth behind it and andy wants to try and get a new trial and he wants to try and get out and he tries he goes to the warden which the warden fuck the warden (laughs) he makes the mistake of calling the warden obtuse yep how can you be so obtuse what
2: what did you call me
0: if there's one thing that our warden is He is very prideful. Yeah. You know, he likes showing his power or letting everyone know that he's in power. And so, you know, you're not allowed to say anything bad about him. Yeah. And he also, at this point, you know, there's no way he's going to let Andy get away because he's his golden fucking goose giving him a shit ton of money.
1: Well, even Andy even says, even even says, sir, I would never implicate you in this because we would, or both of our asses would be on the line and i think the thor- the the warden just sort of takes that as a threat
0: yeah absolutely even though it's obviously not a threat he takes it as a threat so andy gets a month in the fucking hole for that for, for the little bit that threat red and the guys are kind of talking about it. Here we just, we find out that, you know, Red says it's been 19 years that Andy has been in prison. Uh, and we know it's 19 years of wrongful impri- imprisonment. It's just, it sucks. Tommy ends up getting, uh, you know, his letter from the Board of Education. He passes GED. You get a really nice moment with the
1: guard who comes to feed Andy and tells him, which says a lot about Andy and how much he really is actually respected by the guards. Yeah. That they care enough to tell him. Tommy did pass his GED.
0: But the warden in his evilness, he calls for a meeting with Tommy because he knows that, you know, that Tommy is the one who started this, uh he knows what, what happened with Elmo Blatch and the and the truth behind it. He weirdly kind of has Tommy or starts chatting with Tommy outside the prison. So and he's playing up with Tommy that he like oh he wants to try and like get Andy out of here. You know, and Tommy's like, Yeah, yeah, just give me the chance. I, I will I will testify that all of this is true because it is and and we'll try to get andy out of here but what really happens is the warden has hadley kill tommy and and make it look like he was trying to escape yep you know that's why they have the meeting outside the prison right so it really goes to show the evilness both of warden and hadley you know ward the warden ends up giving andy a second month in the hole so he's going to be in there for two fucking months when he opens up and like he was going to let him out right after the first month and he's like no we're done i'm not going to do your fucking d- dirty work anymore and warren's like well fuck you you're getting another month in the hole then bitch yeah my question to you john is you know i always like hadley and hadley is a very physically imposing evil villain yeah who do you think is the better villain is it warden norton or is it captain hadley because they're both so evil in different ways
1: that's a tough call I really think the warden is the bigger villain. Hadley's more of just the muscle.
0: I, I like them both as characters. They are, and and as actors, they they both do a fantastic job with their characters. And I would agree. I mean, Hadley is so intimidating, but the way that the warden manipulates some people, and the way that you know he even tells Hadley what to do with his right. shit, you know, it's Hadley's Darth Vader, Warden's Palpatine. Yes, and that's kind of yes. that's kind of yeah. what, how they are. We now cut to Andy is out of the hole, and he's kind of just in the yard. We can tell something's changed.
1: I wanted to say something and I completely forgot about saying this. So there's a change in the story from the book. In the book, Tommy doesn't die.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Darabont made the decision to kill Tommy because he thought it was necessary to kind of forward Andy's sort of emotional journey, and I think that was the best decision. And this is part of the reason why I think the movie is actually better than the story in this case.
0: Definitely. So, yeah, Andy's out out of the hole and, you know, he founds out about Tommy dying. And I think that is what helps change him. You know, he's not just going to sit there anymore and it's now it's the fucking time. Yeah. And we can see that there's a change in Andy. Yeah. And I think that's a good catalyst. Uh, uh, Tommy's death for like the final, the final straw. Basically Um, we get kind of like this, it feels somewhat ominous. It's like, Holy shit. What's, what's happening. Andy tells red about like this Mexican city that he would go to if he ever got out of prison. And also about this place in, in Buxton, Maine, uh, that he wants Red to to check out if he ever gets out of prison. We get a very good line from Andy. Get
2: busy living
0: or get busy dying. At this moment, you know, you're thinking, oh, God, Andy's going to be getting busy dying. Right. And this is what Red... Red's very worried about this. He's like, oh, God, I, th- I think Andy's going to kill himself. We get, you know, Haywood tells the group that Andy asked for a piece of rope six feet long. And just like oh shit and so now red's worried everybody in the audience is now worried like what the fuck is happening with andy so that night we see andy doing books doing the books for for the warden you know he's doing his regular shit and he's cooking the books Mm -hmm. uh the warden leaves for the night we see him shining some shoes still we can just tell i mean there's the music and there's just something in the way tim robbins has his face that something's off with andy right now yeah and then at, at one point in his cell we see him grab the rope and here we don't know what's happened you know we think oh shit he's about to do something it's storming it's 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 a perfect night for a hanging yeah. uh, you know it's not it's not good the next morning andy doesn't come out of his cell uh, at the morning roll call you know red is looking over he's like what the fuck's going on a guard comes in is just like holy god it's good. Still, we don't know what the fuck is up.
1: That's it. A, I love. I love that. That's how they played this. They they don't show us the room. Yeah. They just show the guard come in and his reaction. I love that. And you don't really get the idea until it's actually. It's weird because in the next scene, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping in on you. Yeah. No, it's in fine. In the next scene, the first inclination you get that something was different was when the warden opens up his shoebox and Andy's shoes are in it.
0: But even then, you still don't know what the fuck that means
1: exactly and you're like okay this is it's now it's now we're just confused and then you hear the siren
0: and then things start to oh shit it's a break exactly and then you know the warden's at the cell uh there's nobody there you know it's like what the fuck is happening they pull in red because you know andy and red are close we get a a line another line that i absolutely love to quote is the warden is just like kind of flipping out just being like
1: (laughs) Lord, it's a miracle! Man up and vanished like a fart in the wind.
0: And I absolutely
1: love that line. Oh, it's good. And actually, one of the other lines he uses with the other guard, not Hadley, I actually have used on students where he goes, I want him found.
0: Not tomorrow. Not after breakfast. (laughs) Now. (laughs) Yeah, great performances. The warden is going a little bit crazy. I mean, and rightfully so because he feels... He's gonna get fucked in this whole thing uh-huh. because he's lost his uh his golden goose and that he could potentially be indicted for stuff. He starts throwing the rocks that he, you know, picks up and he find that they find in uh in Andy's room. And he th- he's throwing them at, you know, the guards in red, and then he turns to the poster, and very coincidentally, you know, it's a little perfect, but he throws a rock at the poster that goes through the poster. And you're hearing like this hollow sound, like, what the fuck? It's like the rock moving through this tunnel thing, and you're like, oh shit. And then you get probably maybe the best known shot in the film mm-hmm. where it's a fantastic shot of Warden sticking his hand through the poster, pulling it out, and then and it's just it's a shot from within the, the tunnel, kind of pulling back. Yeah. And and you get the warden's head, Hadley's head, and Red's head right. all looking into this whole like Oh shit! Yeah. This is what happened. This is how he escaped. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a great shot. I really like reading like online lists of plot holes in movies, and inevitably they always bring up this poster in Shawshank about how did the poster refasten itself when Andy left. Uh huh. And to me, it that's never been a problem. I've never I've never felt it was a plot hole because you just lift up. The poster, it's still hanging on. You know, if you keep it still hanging from your top tacks or whatever, or like your tape, right. and then you go in and you let gravity fucking do its job, and it attaches itself just still kind of like you know from gravity right. at the bottom, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I agree. So why do people why, why people make a, a whole big fucking deal about it? I don't know. I don't see the problem. Yeah, it's 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 not an issue. Uh, so shut up about it. It's not a plot hole, people. <laughs> You know, just fucking deal with it. It's good filmmaking. And if you, if it's really
1: a plot hole to you, try it yourself. Hang a poster yeah. <laughs> and see what happens.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just lift up the bottom portion of the poster. Let it go. See if it falls back down. <laughs> and it will. Anyway, we get... The narration of how Andy did everything, how he escaped, and we're just getting like all of this kind of through Red's narration through like some kind of like flashbacky kind of moments. Uh, We're just we're seeing those. This is the funniest thing for me though. The poster is not an issue. The only kind of issue I have is Andy takes the warden's suit. There is no way that suit would fit Andy, and those shoes would really fit Andy. He's like four inches taller. Than the warden. Yeah, Tim
1: Robbins is like six foot something. Like he's like six five or something like that. He's tall.
0: Yes, and you see that when he's standing next to the warden, and it's like, wait a minute. So he stole the warden's suit and the warden's shoes. There is like no chance in hell that would fit him at all. Like he would look like a like like he'd outgrown the suit completely. He would have like an extra like three inches, you know, through his arms outside of the suit, and it would look terrible. Right, but whatever, I'll, I'll let that slide. <laughs> we get the, like the scenes of how Andy did it. And, you know, we find out that, you know, he used that rock hammer and we kind of are, are thrown back into that scene where he's carving his name into the side of the wall. And like a little bit of the wall pulls out a, mm-hmm. uh, just a fantastic line of geology is the study of pressure and time. You know, that's what Andy was really interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's really all it takes is pressure and time and Andy got enough pressure and he had all the time in yeah. prison to eventually get out. So like it had a very good double meaning. Yeah. Um. So I really like that line. And we see he had to time his his leave perfectly with the weather. You know, so that night was perfectly timed to leave because he needed a thunderstorm to help hide bashing open the sewer duct. The one thing that my wife and I talked
1: about that was unrealistic and you could also you can make the case that he widens it when he get in there but the hole that he sticks his head into is <laughs> way too small for him to get through and obviously later he could have like bashed the hole in bigger and stuff like that yeah. but it made it seem like that was as far as he went
0: yeah i agree like he sticks his head in and you know his shoulders can't get through that yeah but i yeah uh, I, I saw i know what you mean
1: <laughs> but i you know what i i will totally suspend disbelief for this moment
0: and we see him you know he crawls through the sewer pipes it's very intense you get this really good music build going on and we get Andy's freedom he pulls himself out of the sewer pipe and he gets into like this river and it's raining and it's really um, emotional because it's a cleansing rain Yeah, it's cleaning him off from the shit of Shawshank and like that's kind of like literally and figuratively exactly the shit of, of Shawshank he, that he was just gone through he is now Cleansed himself and he has gotten out of there. Yep. And so it's a, but it's a beautiful shot. It's fantastic music at this point. You just, you just feel so good for Andy. And we kind of just get some quick stuff of him using his alias of Randall Stevens that he set up. And, you know, he gets a, he steals a shit ton of the warden's money. He gets out of town. Andy ingeniously swapped the accounting books. Uh, he left all of the uh, account information books, he took that and he left the Bible for uh, the warden to find in his little safe. And that's where the warden opens it up. And we see that that's where the, the rock hammer was hiding. And it, you just, yeah, you, you get all that stuff and it it comes back to like other spots when you rewatch the film and it works so fucking good. Did you notice the writing
1: at the book bu- on the opening of the book when he opens the,
0: yeah, that Andy, Andy left, uh, he left a little road in there.
1: I, uh, for some reason, I didn't really notice that until this last time I watched it.
0: It's just like a little personalized message. I can't remember what it said. It says,
1: you were right. Salvation really does lie within.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Which does, which comes, it definitely comes back. Yeah. (laughs) We also get that Andy sent the other books and some, some corruption information to a journalist. The cops end up coming in and they end up taking Hadley away, which is kind of nice. You get a little justification for Hadley being the asshole that he was and the warden ends up shooting himself as opposed to being taken and honestly you kind of think that that might be the end of the film right you know that kind of it's kind of like a, a spot where you would feel naturally it ends but it doesn't and actually i'm really glad it doesn't yeah because here we have red and the others, they're still in the prison. You know, we're still getting, and this is probably why it's like, you know, Red's really the lead yeah. more than Andy because the the story sticks with Red. Yeah. Even though it kind of bounces back and forth. You know, sometimes sometimes the the camera follows Andy. Sometimes the camera follows Red. Right now, we're kind of, and that's why it's a, it's a it's a buddy film. Yeah. You know, it's both of their stories that's that's important. Yep. Now we're getting another parole hearing for Red. This is his 40th year in prison. So about you know maybe around a year ish after Andy left, and we're getting Red. Now saying He's not doing the same speech That he said before He's saying something completely different And it's because Red has completely changed And he's really grown up It's a fantastic monologue From Morgan Freeman
2: Yeah, Rehabilitated? Well now let me see You know I don't have any idea What that means Well it means you're ready To rejoin society I know what you think it means sonny To me, it's just a made-up word, a politician's word, so that young fellas like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I am. There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him telling the way things are, but I can't. That kid's long gone, and this old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. Rehabilitated It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time, because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit.
1: It's funny because it always seems to me like it's very much a, an old person lying because he's like, stop wasting my time, Sonny.
0: Yeah, it's all, all very get off my lawn, <laughs> but it's just like, you you young little shits, you know, I, I'm i too tired for this. You yeah. know, I'm done with all this stuff. That's when the people know he's been defeated. Yeah. You know, he's, he's done. So he gets parole actually and here we get a fantastic parallels between Brooks's story. Mm-hmm. And so we see Red is at the grocery store working the same kind of job that Brooks did. He's at the same halfway house in the same exact room. We even see that Brooks was here, you know, on the banister that he ended up hanging himself on. It makes you feel like, "Oh shit, is Red going to do the exact same thing right. that Brooks did?" And we see, you know, there's even a little shot where he's at a pawn shop and he looks in the window. And he sees these guns, and you're like, oh, fuck, is he just going to shoot himself? And then it pans over to this compass instead, and Red buys a compass. And and the reason Red doesn't end up like Brooks is because of his friendship with Andy, mm-hmm. and because of Andy's hope, and Andy getting out, and the ability to maybe see Andy again is why... I think Red doesn't end up going the same path as Brooks and why he wants to follow Andy's lead. And he goes up to Buxton and he, you know, finds a letter and some money that Andy gave him. You get a hopeful spot, you know, it's like, Oh my God, this is, this is going to happen. Red ditches Maine. He, he breaks his parole and he ends up leaving the country. We end with, them reuniting on the Mexican sands of Saywateño, I think yep. I can't remember if I'm pronouncing it right. Yep, it sounds right. Our friends are reunited and we're happy. You know, they went through an entire terrible life together, a war, if you will. Yeah. Now that they they can live past it and they can just be buddies, and it is um, it's a beautiful story. At the end, you had to get through a lot of hardships to get there. Yeah. So, all right, <laughs> we've I know we've talked for a good bit, but now let's uh, let's wrap up our discussion on Shawshank John if you wouldn't mind telling us your thoughts
1: you know I like to think that I'd have something like overarching and poignant to say but I think I've said about as much about the film as, as I can say I love the film it's one of those movies I will watch it if it's on no matter what point in the movie it is if it's five minutes in or there's five minutes left I will watch it it's a great master class on storytelling. I am in total agreement with you, and I think this is quite possibly my favorite movie mm. ever. Ever. Not my favorite prison movie, not my favorite childhood movie. It's
0: my favorite movie ever. Each time I watch it, I get reminded as to why it is my favorite film. It may not be the best cinematography of every film ever, mm-hmm. it may not be the best editing, it may not be the best score. Of all of that stuff, but it is so good on everything. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is such a, it's a near perfect film where every aspect of it is done so well from the writing is so good. You don't realize how good the writing is until you rewatch it multiple times. Yeah. The cinematography editing, the acting, the acting, and it's literally every single person in the film. Mm-hmm. The acting is fantastic. The guy who plays Boggs, I fucking hate him, and he plays that character great. Yep. Clancy Brown as Hadley, Bob Gunton as the warden. They're evil people, and they do a fantastic job. And then all of the other character actors yeah. outside of Andy and Red, they're they're their own characters, and I love each one of them. Yeah. You know, I love Brooks, and I love Haywood, and even like the other guys that you don't get as much, but you end up really liking them, and because... It's because they do a great job. The actors do fantastically. And there's nothing I can say that we haven't already about Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins' performances. They do amazing jobs each. I'd say, I mean, maybe particularly Morgan Freeman, but even even Tim Robbins was was fantastic. And this film, as we've mentioned before, it makes me cry. It makes me angry. It makes me smile. This movie makes me go through so many emotions that it, it makes me love the art of filmmaking this is the kind of film that made me want to join the industry yeah. because it can it can pull you into so many directions that's something that art can do that other things can't you know you you read a book and you get pulled into the same you know that's what story does right. it'll pull you into the same directions some people can look at look at a, at a painting and get pulled into many different emotional directions. Or you listen to a piece of music, and it does the same kind of stuff. So that, that kind of love that Andy talked about with the scene of music is the same kind of love that I feel watching this film mm-hmm. about art <laughs> and what it does to me. Yeah, This is an amazing piece of art. I cannot wait to watch it again. Yeah, I'm not going to wait another year to watch this. I just want to sit, turn off all my lights, and it get engulfed and just enjoy this film again. And I'm going to do that probably pretty damn soon. Yeah, That's Shawshank Redemption. It's uh, just a fantastic film. Uh, If you guys haven't seen it, I would so highly recommend it. And if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and rewatch it. I don't think I can emphasize enough how good this film is on its second, third, 100th viewing. Mm -hmm. Every viewing is worth it. And so uh, definitely, guys, go out there, watch it. I agree.
1: And now we're going to hit the other end of the spectrum with the courtroom sitcom Night Court. Uh, This show ran from 1984 to 1992. 193 episodes, nine seasons. That's a
0: very good run. I had no idea that it it had so many episodes and lasted for so long.
1: Yeah. Uh, It was created by Reinhold Wiege. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name. <laughs> I
0: think I think you're right.
1: This is pretty much his only big claim to fame. I think he he did some writing on like maybe Barney Miller or some other yeah. things. Other than that, not too much. That's about it. Uh, it stars Harry Anderson as Judge Harry T. Stone, John Larroquette as Dan Fielding, the assistant district attorney. Uh, Richard Mole plays Bull, the sort of courtroom security guard. And starting in season two, you get Charles Robinson as Mac who is kind of the mm-hmm. the court clerk, I believe. Yep. And then uh, starting on season three, Marky Post, who plays uh, Christine Sullivan, who is like the defense attorney, uh, she kind of carries that. The first couple seasons, they had a couple different ladies. I think there was different in season yeah. one and two. But she carries the bulk of that from season three up through nine. And I will admit, it has been a long time since I'd watched Night Court. It was really fucking funny.
0: You didn't mention... Marsha Warfield, who plays Roz Russell, one of the other bailiffs. Oh, yeah, yeah yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, start, she doesn't start until like season three, or I think two or three or something. Yeah. I can't remember when she gets started. And she is, I think she's probably my favorite character <laughs> in the entire fucking show. She's a, a no nonsense, fucking hilarious bailiff. Love her. Yes.
1: So, as I mentioned, I had completely forgotten how funny this show it was, is, yeah. and still. Still holds up through a lot of the stuff. We watched, I watched, I ended up watching about five episodes. I watched the pilot. If I can, I tend to try to watch the pilot. And then I did a search for what, you know, what was considered maybe the best episodes. And uh, I'll actually, the bulk of them came out of season four.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I watched a couple. I watched like probably about five episodes as well. One from season one. I couldn't find the pilot. So I just like, just grabbed a random one from season one. And then I watched like maybe two from season four one from five and like one from like seven or something like that
1: um, i did i watched the pilot i watched three from five and then i watched one from uh, i actually watched the penultimate episode so the oh, okay um because it was considered one of the better ones according to the the list that i saw this actually going back and re-watching this now I kind of want to go back and go through the whole season. The only thing is that sucks is it's not on. It's not on Netflix. It's not on Hulu. Yeah, you can like I ended up just buying a few episodes on iTunes.
0: Yeah, I found a few on Daily Motion, um, so I could kind of get the, a little bit there. But yeah, this the show had uh, the writing. It was it was quick. It was witty. It was funny. Yeah, the delivery of the lines were fantastic. It was pretty fucking good. Uh, I will say there was a little bit overuse of the laugh track, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I got a little tired of 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 the laugh track, but it was uh, definitely an enjoyable show. I was uh, surprised as well because I remember this one being on syndication, and and I think it originally aired on NBC. But I don't remember, you know, if we saw it on like Nick at Night or some other thing. I don't. I don't right. even know what where I would have seen it. I can't remember if you said the years or not, but it was uh, from eighty-four to ninety-two. So, and then it, it, with one hundred ninety-three episodes, shit ton of syndication. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm with you. I was surprised as to how much I was I liked the show.
1: Yeah, I definitely think having watched a couple of the earlier ones, I think it fell into the same it kind of. There's kind of a saying where most shows don't hit their stride till about season three, mm-hmm. and I think you can definitely tell in this in in this show. Um, and I think it really came down to when they finally got their casting settled, um, and they weren't adding and, and removing people. The sort of it's funny the the initial pilot. The idea is is that this judge gets his appointment because the either the governor or the mayor on his last day of office starts appointing a bunch of people.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And and his last day of office apparently in this case is on a Sunday. Larequette. His character kind of, I finally asked him, like, how the hell did you become a judge? Because he comes in and he's quirky. He doesn't dress like, he doesn't come in in a suit. He's he not dressed like a judge. He does magic tricks. Yes. Like, all, all of these weird things. You're like, who is this guy and why is he pretending to be a judge? And he asked, he asked him, so, uh, you know, was like, how did you become? And he goes, I was at the bottom of the list. And they just started calling people. He goes, well, it was Sunday. Nobody was home. <laughs> Guess who was home? I was home.
0: Oh, uh, that's awesome! Yeah, you mentioned the magic, and Harry Anderson was like a magician, kind of like a comedy magician turned actor. Mm-hmm. And I like how they incorporated that into the show, and they put some of that stuff away, put that stuff uh, into it, which was just funny, and it added added a little bit of the actual actor into the character, and I think it worked well.
1: Yeah, I watched an episode. Uh, oh, I cannot remember the name. It had to do with this character named Leon, who was a kid. Um, I think he was kind of a runaway. And I actually, I didn't watch the first, it was a two-parter and I didn't watch the first part. I only watched the second part. So the gist you get is that this is a kid who's kind of homeless and he ran away from the the orphanage or whoever's trying to take care of him. But Harry had befriended him. And because Harry knew magic, he showed the kid how to get out of handcuffs. Uh, And the kid used that to escape nice so it actually it actually ended up being a very very um serious and poignant episode in the end okay basically i tell you what I, the gist of what i got from all the stuff I, I saw if you ever went back and just watched one season watch season 4 okay apparently that appears to be the consensus that season 4 was the the best one
0: uh, i want to go through kind of some of the other actors and some of the things yeah uh, harry anderson uh, unfortunately he passed away yes. this year earlier this year yeah. which stinks because he was funny. I definitely, yeah. Uh, he wore, my God, the fedoras. I just, <laughs> so many, he, he wore so many. I just remember that look, you know, when he wasn't, when he wasn't dressed up as a judge, he would like have, he looked more like a detective than anything else, like a private eye with all the fedoras that he had on. Right. Yeah. Very unorthodox. Yeah. Just funny. Yeah. John Larroquette, who I best know from Stripes. Yes. He was kind of like the asshole commander in Stripes. Yep. And in this show, he was funny. He was very sexist, and he was kind of like a jerk even, but he was funny as hell. He actually won four straight Emmys oh, wow. for his performance in this show.
1: I was going to say, he's kind of like the Barney, Sins- Barney Stinson before Barney Stinson.
0: Yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. He's good, yeah, but obviously he was uh, well portrayed. But I, the thing that I probably remember most is Bull, yeah. the bailiff. I, for some reason... I just really... He's kind of like, you know, big dumb guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's, but he was funny, and just his look. Richard Mull has a very distinct look, in my opinion. I just can, You can pick him out pretty easily. Yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff, but I didn't realize until just seeing his IMDb that... He was actually the voice of Mac Gargan/the slash the Scorpion in the uh, Spider-Man animated show. Oh,
1: okay. All right, you want my tail,
2: Spider-Man? Here. It. It's all yours.
0: And I definitely remember that run of, of Mac of Mac Gargan and the Scorpion in there. Uh, I had no idea that it was Richard Mole, but yeah. yeah, his 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 look and just his big towering image compared to a lot of the other people in the show is something that he stands out for me
1: we talked about uh richard mole when we talked about sidekicks right
0: because he was he was the gym teacher i don't we didn't talk about him much but yeah he was definitely in that okay so yeah but the show was good Uh, the theme song was absolutely nothing to write home about is a very jazzy kind of theme song i thought i still thought it was memorable I don't know if I would call it memorable.
1: (laughs) You know what it actually reminded me of? It actually kind of reminded me of the Cosby Show intro.
0: Oh, interesting. But yeah, uh, the show. I would say you know we're kind of running fairly quick through it, but we talked enough about Shawshank <laughs> that I don't think we need to dive too much into Nightcore. But I do recommend people checking it out if they haven't. Um, it's fun to rewatch. It's definitely it's a good one to 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 check out now that you're a little bit older. Yeah, because I'm getting some good humor there that I'm sure when I you know when I watched this before, I think I probably you know was just maybe dad had it on or just kind of stumbled across it or something. Right. We just would watch it there, and I would totally, I would totally watch this show if someone else had it on yeah. if if someone was watching it and they were binging it I would totally sit right there and be engaged and be and laugh and really enjoy it and I might go and watch some more episodes honestly like I really wish that like it would be on Hulu and then I could just like actually watch everything yeah. from start to finish unfortunately unfortunately the difficulty of actually finding the show is gonna make it hard for me to want to Go and actually watch it anymore Like, I'm not going to go buy the DVDs for this one But I did like it And if they find a way to make it easy for me to watch it uh, I will I totally agree This episode of the Blast From Our Past podcast Is brought to you by Pound Puppies
2: Those lonely Pound Puppies really need to be rescued Pound Puppy, I'm so glad to find you pound behind you. Give me a name. I'll call you Freckles. Lots of pound puppies need your love. Ask for me, Petey. And when they're this lonely and this lovable, one more is always welcome. Come share in all our cuddling care and puppy love. Pound puppies. Each sold separately. From Tonka.
1: And now we're going to do the casting portion of the show. As we mentioned at the top, we're going to be kind of a throwback to our famous Western Badasses show. We're going to do famous prisoners, real life prisoners. There's a lot of different ones. I think there's probably more well known prisoners than there were, you know, Western Badasses. Mm-hmm. We have a kind of a, a fairly long list of fairly of fairly well known convicts. Uh, we're going to be doing. Charles Manson, Timothy McVeigh, Mary Bell, Nelson Mandela, Martha Stewart, Ted the Unabomber Kaczynski, El Chapo, and Juana Barraza. For
0: when it comes to, like, serial killers and stuff like that, there's a lot of just (laughs) whitey, just white guys. And so we we tried to switch it up from, like, just serial killers to actual prisoners. And so we wanted to mix it up. So, I mean, most people here had done something bad uh, other than, like, Nelson Mandela is more political active in, but he was very, he was probably one of the most famous prisoners of all time. I yeah, agreed. So, yeah, I think it's a, a pretty diverse list which I think is kind of cool. So, my question to you Adam, do you want to start with uh, Chucky Manson or do you want to end with Chucky
1: Manson? <laughs> let's let's end with Chucky. Okay. Chuck. Well, let's go to really interesting person, Juana Barraza. She was a Mexican wrestler who was thought or charged, I can't remember which one to have killed between, like, 40 and 48 women.
0: Yeah, it's a crazy story. It's definitely something that you would find, like, a, a biopic. Uh, you know, I, I'm surprised there's not a movie really about her.
1: Yeah, or at least not one that we know of.
0: Maybe maybe something like Lifetime did, but yeah. I'm talking about a good one. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she was a
1: former Mexican uh, professional wrestler. Not even just a wrestler, was a professional wrestler. And she was sentenced to 759 years in prison <laughs> For killing between forty-two and forty-eight elderly women.
0: Holy shit! Yeah, so yeah, she's not not a good person. So yeah, plenty of prison sentence. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, I'll go ahead and jump in. I ended up going with a woman who's already famous for playing a prisoner. Uh, she's on the show Orange Is the New Black, and it is the actress Salinas Leva, uh, who also made a cameo appearance on Spider-Man: Homecoming as one of the teachers in uh, Peter Parker's school.
0: Oh, I like that call. I used to like Orange Is the New Black until the last two seasons. I thought were absolutely rough, and so I, I've given up on the show. I
1: only watched the first two seasons, and then I kind of stopped after that.
0: Yeah, those first seasons uh, they were good, so yeah. I like that, and I and I like that. I like that choice. I went a little younger with my pick, partly just because I I think it's you know you're gonna you're gonna get a whole bunch of different portions of this lady's story, right? And so I kind of want to make sure I get uh you know that younger, which which I'm sure your actors could do, or they'll figure out how to make it happen. Right. Or just cast someone for that. But uh, I wanted another a similar... I wanted a Latino actress. Are you? you, you rep- I'm not gonna. I'm not going to... I didn't go out of the... Since we're doing actual biopics here, yeah. I didn't go outside of the race and gender um, aspect. I didn't
1: either, because you obviously need somebody who represents... So the other thing is, you kind of also have to find someone who kind of looks like the person. Kind of, yeah. Which l- kind of limits your options, so... <laughs>
0: yeah, which I had trouble finding someone for... Uh, Juana Baraza, because she is a very distinct looking person. She she was not she is not the best looking lady. And the problem is, and I I've talked to my wife about this, is you know, I search very often for like when I'm trying to find people who I'm trying to cast, I will just go on Google and search best Latino actress. Right. Or best black actress. And inevitably, every single time I type in, you know, if I say best. Black actor, I get a list of best black actors. If I type in best black actress, the first like 10 things I ever find is most beautiful black exactly. actresses. And I'm like, I'm not looking for most beautiful. I want to know who the fuck is the best. Yes, And it's it just shows like, God damn, that sucks. You know, that's we, all we do is think about women's looks first. And it's like, I just want to know who the hell is the best. I,
1: you know what? I had the exact same problem
0: when I was looking for this casting. Because I was like, I was, lo- I just started looking for
1: Latina actresses. And every single one, every single list was, basically it was a list of the hottest Latina actresses. Yes. And I'm like, this is not what I'm looking for. Finally, I was thinking, oh wait, there's a lot of Latina actresses in Orange is the New Black. And that's when I went in there and, and pretty much immediately found Selena. So
0: I wish... I would have thought the way you thought and gone into <laughs> Orange Is the New Black because that I would have found someone there as well, yeah. um, and I like that call. Uh, I ended up going with an actress who's very she's a very good actress. Uh, we've seen her mostly in the Deadpool movie and then also Firefly. Uh, her name is uh, Marina Bacarden. She's from Brazil, but she's she is very beautiful. But Hollywood is gonna doll up this character a little bit more than they probably should, right? And I think I think if you kind of cut her hair and you can ugly. I mean, you know what, if they could make Charlize Theron, you know, look the way she did in the movie monster, they could, they could kind of like do some makeup for anyone else. That is fair. And she's a good actress. So Marina uh, Baccarin is who I went with.
1: And, And, you know, especially, especially if, uh, if they're going for the younger part of the story,
0: Yeah, which I wanted to try and get some of that. Right.
1: All right, let's move up to El Chapo, who was in the news not too long ago because he was, I believe he was accidentally let out of prison. Wasn't that what it was? Or he escaped somehow?
0: He escaped, yeah, he keeps escaping or keeps getting, get out. Like, this guy is uh, very interesting. And he's he's almost... It's, I think it's, it fits perfectly for Shawshank because <laughs> he keeps escaping. He's a leader of a Mexican drug cartel. I believe he's in U.S. custody now. I thought. Maybe. I, 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 yeah, I can't
1: remember. I thought I read that somewhere. I could be wrong. But uh, I'm going to let you go take this one first.
0: Sure. Uh, so, El Chapo, which is slang for shorty, uh, because apparently. You know the guy is actually is pretty short. Yeah, uh, he's only like five six. I wanted a, a Hispanic short actor. This guy can do absolutely anything. He can go super comedic. He can go super dramatic. And I think with El Chapo, you know, you got to have some good range. And he's also pretty short. I went with Michael Pena as my El Chapo.
1: Okay, I like that call. Um, I kind of went in a different direction because I went with the older El Chapo. Oh, okay. An older style El Chapo. Although, I'll be honest, my El Chapo does not necessarily fit the physical description and doesn't really look... I kind of just sort of finally picked an actor who I liked and was like, fuck it. I'll go with him. He'll tell the story right, even if he doesn't look exactly like El Chapo. And I haven't—I uh, actually haven't seen him in too many things recently. And I don't—I don't know if that's—that's uh, that's just because I haven't been seeing the things he's doing or what. Uh, I actually went with the actor Luis Guzmán.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, he's definitely—he's got the—he's got the look. He's got a unique look. Yeah. That you know could kind of. He could look like a drug lord. He's a good actor. I like Luis Guzman yeah. a lot, actually. Yeah, he's definitely on the older side, but I think I like I like that call though. I'm not gonna shit on that. You know yeah, what we should
1: good. do? Well, I was gonna say well, we should team him up and and have Pena play the younger and Luis play the older. Young? Yeah. I don't know that they particularly look exactly alike, but No, not really. But it's Hollywood, nobody gives a shit.
0: Yeah. I'm cool with that. <laughs>
1: Uh, all right. Uh, now the infamous Unabomber, Mr. Ted Kaczynski. I definitely remember uh, all of this going down. Um, I believe it was kind of in the early 90s when he was uh, sending mail bombs.
0: What I remember is his headshot. Yeah. Uh, well, they, Ted they, Kaczynski's headshot was crazy.
1: The first thing that they found was the sketch drawing of him, of him with the, yeah, the aviators was, and the hood, and, and that sort of became, yes. it's a look now. It's known as the Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people who know the look and probably don't know what it's from
0: yeah that that's probably the most one of the most famous things that came out of the whole unibomber thing was that sketch yep and and the, and the and the fact that the guy that the fact that ted kaczynski looked nothing like the sketch <laughs> yeah he's kind of a uh older <laughs> yeah he was in his like mid-60s when this whole when he did, did this whole thing yeah uh, and he, he looks like he's just he just looks a little crazy.
1: And he was uh, he was actually a mathematics like prodigy. He was a professor. Oh, wow. And then uh, and then he kind of he abandoned his uh, sort of college per- career to basically live in a cabin in the woods mm. and <laughs> slowly went crazy. He definitely has kind of a distinct look. I actually am really happy with the actor I ended up going with for my Ted Kaczynski. Um, he's a fantastic actor. He's been sort of sidemen in a lot of really good movies but he's a lead in a movie that I know we're going to get to because we've both talked about how much we love this movie, and that was the movie Lone Star. I went with Chris Cooper.
0: Oh, god damn. Oh, I love Chris Cooper. And I
1: think he looks enough, you know, you scraggle his beard, you get his hair long, he could look like Ted Kaczynski, and he would act the shit out of a, a movie like this.
0: Oh, he's a fantastic actor. Yeah. I like that. I like that call. He's really good. And so yeah, oh man, I like that. I- I'm glad. I'm glad we got Chris Cooper into something. I know.
1: <laughs> actually, there's a few people I have in, in my list here who I don't think I didn't know if I was ever going to get into uh, casting. So I'm actually, I'll be honest with you, that's, I'm actually pretty proud of my casting t- this time.
0: Nice, good. good, good, good. Well, I am too. <laughs> uh, and so far, you haven't given me anything that is shitty. So, <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, I won't give you any shitty ones right. either. I like that Chris Cooper one. I went with an actor who I think looks a good bit like Ted Kaczynski. Uh-huh. My guy is uh, maybe two, I think he saw it, two years older than Chris Cooper, uh, but Ted Kaczynski did his shit in like his mid sixties. And my guy's in his like late sixties now, but that's yeah, fine. Yeah, it totally works. And he totally, I feel looks enough like Ted Kaczynski in like the pictures that I've seen. I went with Sean Bean as my Ted Kaczynski. Uh-
1: I like that call. I will never shit on Sean Bean. I think he's an incredible actor. And you know what? Scruff him up a little bit more than you usually see him and I you know he would totally he would totally do a good job as well.
0: Yeah, he's not he's definitely not scruffy in most of his stuff. You know, he's usually pretty clean cut looking. Particularly I'm thinking like the was the Bond movie that he was in, uh, yeah. but even in uh you know Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, you know, he had he was kind of still looked Nobleish and and good and clean, right? Um, but yeah, if you give him like that wiry hair <laughs> and like a crazy beard, I think I think he will look pretty uh Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. Oh
1: yeah, I'd totally buy that as well.
0: Cool. Uh, both so both good castings there. There for we sure. go.
1: All right, uh Martha Stewart. Why don't you lead this one off?
0: Yeah, I had a tough time with Martha Stewart because I was trying to really encapsulate the look of Martha Stewart. The problem is I couldn't get anybody that I thought looked really good other than someone like Candace Bergen right. who looks exactly like her but she's older and now not maybe Candace Bergen looked like her 20 years ago but now she's put on enough weight and, and she hasn't really done any real acting other than like they brought back Murphy Brown. Right. I don't think she's the right call. And then I almost went Meryl Streep. Mm. I was so close to going Meryl Streep because she's done other like biopics, like uh, was it the Jules and Julia, the Julia Child one, which is a great and, movie.
1: I love that movie.
0: Which I was like, maybe I was thinking a little too much like that. Oh, she's played a cook before. <laughs> she can do it again with Martha Stewart. And so I didn't end up going with that route. But I do, I still like her, and I'm sure she would be a great one because ultimately I wanted to go a little bit younger. I wanted someone who could like kind of play the younger Meryl or the younger Martha Stewart all the way up to an older Martha Stewart. And I think she was like, eh, maybe in her forties ish when the whole getting put in, in jail happened. And with her, her it was uh... only about 10 years ago. Okay. Well then, yeah, whatever. It
1: was, it was like 2004, I think.
0: Yeah. 2004. But anyway, I went with an, a good actress who I think has enough versatility. She's been in so many different types of things from comedy to drama, a great actress, I ended up going with Reese Witherspoon as my huh. Martha Stewart. That
1: she would be good for for a younger Martha Stewart. I I like that call. And then they could just make her make her a little older um, as she goes through the stuff.
0: And I just get kind of like you know that. Susie Homemaker-esque kind of thing and that's what Martha Stewart's so famous for right and I think Reese Witherspoon can play that and then she's got it she has got tons of great acting chops to kind of see some of the you know not the evilness of Martha Stewart but like you know her uh, insider trading kind of shit and, right and, and the the genius of it so yeah
1: all right all right so I can I pretty much just cast it around the time that she was arrested so Okay. Uh, I went with an older actress. Um, I do remember there was a made-for-TV movie that was st- that starred uh, Sybil Shepherd as Martha Stewart.
0: Oh yeah, Oh, Sybil Shepherd. And okay. She, yeah, she's kind of got a good she, look. Yeah, to she
1: got a good look. So I, I I did I did sort of check the ages and everything. So this happened like mid in the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. So that was about a little over 10 years ago. I actually went with an actress who's five years younger than Martha Stewart. It, there's, you know, there's not much to say. She's amazing. Actually, one of my favorite movies of hers, even though she's known as a great dramatic actress, my favorite movie that I think she's ever been in is the comedy, sort of the action thriller comedy, Red, starring Bruce Willis. And that's Helen Mirren.
0: I like that call, too. Helen, I mean, Helen Mirren's fantastic.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely going for the uh, pretty much right around the time of I want my story to be about her going to prison.
0: Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I, I, I'm going to get that. No, I'm, I'm cool with that. I, I like Helen, Helen Mirren. I think that's a, that's a good spot.
1: All right. So let's move on to Nelson Mandela. It's a hard call because Nelson, he was played by, I you know, everyone's first thought was Morgan Freeman. Well, Morgan Freeman did play Nelson Mandela in that, I forget the name of the movie.
0: Invictus from 2009.
1: And he did a great job.
0: A lot of actors have played Nelson Mandela through the years. But I wanted to focus
1: on sort of the beginnings of, you know, what put him in prison initially back in, I believe it was the 60s. Yeah,
0: it was in the 60s. Yeah, 62, I believe. I think around then is when he actually was uh, incarcerated.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and he was in his, around his 40s. I did the math. I think he was around his, his mid to late 40s at the time, uh, which is it's wild to think that he was in prison for so long and then came out and was this almost malevolent leader that we all sort of adore. Yeah. Uh, so I went with someone who's younger than you think because we all think of him as being older because you know, especially you and I, we didn't live through any of that stuff. And I'm not going to lie. I had a hard time picking someone i kind of tossed around maybe will smith because he's mm-hmm. he could do something like that and so i actually ended up with someone who isn't necessarily known for his dramatic roles in the broader sort of populace but the dramatic roles he has played are great and i'm specifically thinking of two roles i'm thinking of collateral and ray
0: and i went with jamie fox as my younger nelson mandela no he can he can definitely do it and jamie fox is like lessened in my eyes as an actor for because of Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> but there's no denying, particularly Ray, but also I really I do like him in collateral and a whole bunch of other yeah. films that he is a really strong actor. And I do I do think he would do a good job. I like that one. I do like that one. Okay. Um I may like mine better, but not That's much, okay. honestly. I think that probably could be even par. Yeah, Nelson Mandela has had A bunch of people play him. Even Idris Elba has played him. Danny Glover. The way that you brought it up, like when I think of Nelson Mandela, I think of older Nelson Mandela. So the first name that came to my mind was actually an older, an older actor who would be too old because I would again similar with you. I'd want someone who could play in the '60s and that kind of that life to see him getting incarcerated. And so the first person I thought was uh, Joe Morton. Oh yeah, from Terminator Two. Yeah a uh, bunch of stuff, amazing actor, Love him. but he's just, he's too old. Yeah. He, and partly because I want to, I want to cast him in something. <laughs> and so I was like, can I make this work? Because I want, Joe Morton is uh, underrated as an actor. And so I wanted to just try and get him into something, but I, instead I'll just mention his okay. name. <laughs> <laughs> instead I went with someone who is probably around the same age of Jamie Fox. He might be a tiny bit older, Maybe he actually already did a biopic very recently of OJ Simpson. And so he knows how to dive into the life of someone else and to play them. So I went with Cuba Gooding Jr. As my Nelson. Mandela. That's a
1: good call too. Cause he, 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 uh, he smashed it out of the park with the, uh, with OJ Simpson. Mm-hmm. And I would totally believe that I, I like that pick. A lot, actually. I like yeah. that pick a lot. Yeah, they're both good. All right. Now we're going to go to the one that I'm uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I had the hardest time, and I just kind of threw in a name. Yeah. Um, you put this name on the list, so I wanted to see if you would sort of introduce who this this person is.
0: Yes. I put this per- character on the list because previously we had like, just some other, like, plain white guys, right. uh, just, like, white males. And so instead I wanted to add in a, a little different casting, and so I put in this killer her name is Mary Bell. She is a child killer.
1: Not that she kills children, although I think she did kill children.
0: She did. Yeah, she killed she killed two young boys,
1: but she was what she was 10 years old when she did it.
0: Yeah, she killed exactly. She killed she killed two different boys and between the ages of 11 or 10 and 11 is, in uh, in 1968 she strangled two different boys to death. Jeez. Which is fucked up. She was known as the Tyneside Strangler. Uh, that was like her nickname, Jeez. but she was she was uh, a kid in in Britain. Yeah, so she was a little fucked up. Um, she's actually been released, so she's out in the world. Hopefully, she's really rehabilitated. I assume so. She, I think it's a very interesting story, and is something that would you know just be kind of kind of different yeah. than you know another guy serial killer. Um, so I just picked a young actress who I hope could do the part. <laughs> I yeah. don't really know if she could. But I just picked her basically off look, and she has the right around the right age. She's in the, around, I think, 9 or 10 right now. She has been in the movie American Sniper and some other stuff. She doesn't have a huge resume, but I'm hoping she could do it. I went with uh, an actress named Madeline McGraw.
1: Yep, I could buy it. I could totally buy it because I also went with Madeline McGraw. Whoa, holy shit. I, I also just basically pulled that name out of a hat.
0: <laughs> that was... Wow, that is uh, ridiculous that we both picked. Like, I just literally just picked a random female actor, and who is around the age. And she she was like, "Well, you look like you have dark hair, and you look like a a girl, and you you're gonna be my person." That's hilarious. John. Yes,
1: I, that was weird when you started describing it. I'm like, "Holy shit!" I think this is the same one I picked, and that's good. I don't think we've had a similar casting since uh since we casted bill and ted's excellent adventure when we both picked ezra miller we actually we both picked we had two similar castings in that one
0: yeah you're right yeah and we both had dave Chappelle. i think it's
1: been since then that we've had a a similar casting
0: wow but this one but and of course it had to be our super not thought out (laughs) (laughs) one. one, we're just like hey you're a fucking kid the one random one (laughs) yeah that's funny. All right, so let's move on
1: to Timothy McVeigh, the one who orchestrated and carried out the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. I remember, uh, actually, remember exactly where I was when they executed him. Um, I was working, uh, mm. I was working in the back of a, in the warehouse of a company that our father used to work for. Oh, okay. And uh, I thought
0: you were going to say, uh, was it Media Play?
1: No, because this this happened, uh, this happened while I was in college. And I didn't work in Media Play anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, God, I remember media plays I loved. I mean, it was like like Best Buy. Best Buy came in and took over media play. Yeah. But you used to work at – I remember you used to work at the media play. Media play
1: Play was (laughs) like if Best Buy and Barnes & Noble had a baby. Yeah. I had good times. I met a lot of nice people working there. So I remember when uh, he was executed because the uh, the plant manager, who uh, was basically in charge of us back there, came out and let us all know that he that he was dead. Okay. <laughs> it's like, all right, well that happened. Uh, there's, you know, there've been there've been movies made about this and and a lot's been said about it. But uh, he, uh, Timothy McVeigh, has a kind of a unique facial structure, and so I had a little bit of a hard time finding someone who could do this. But I, I think I found someone who I think could work well. He's probably a little bit younger than what Timothy mcveigh was i didn't really do the math i'm just kind of spitballing this Mm -hmm. and i had a couple of names go through mine but i'm I'm actually kind of glad i settled on who i settled on so i for timothy mcveigh i went with the actor miles teller
0: oh okay miles teller good actor yeah and i think he's done like even uh some like military stuff but i could see i could see him look timothy mcveigh like was a military-ish guy and had like the shaved head and the haircut i bet Miles, miles teller would be a a good choice yeah, I like that. I like that. No, I think you I think he's about right bot on or just maybe a tiny bit older than Timothy McVeigh was Okay,
1: at the time of the bombing.
0: Timothy McVeigh was in his late 20s when he did okay, that. Okay. Well then that sounds about right. No, so Miles Teller can play that perfectly. He can play in my late 20s very well. Um I like that call. That's that's a goof. Cool. That's a good choice. Similarly, the look of Timothy McVeigh, I had trouble trying to figure out exactly what I wanted, and so I kind of went with a, an actor who had, definitely has a unique look of on his own. To me, he ties in a little bit because he was in the military. And so he can pull some of that when he plays Timothy McVeigh. I went with Adam Driver.
1: Okay, he doesn't exactly look exactly like Timothy McVeigh, but he could totally
0: he could totally play that part. I totally believe that. Adam Driver is a very he he looks Adam Driver. (laughs) He kind of reminds me of like when I see Adrian Brody in something, like I just see his crooked (laughs) nose, and I just see Adrian Brody. Very similarly, I only see like Adam Driver as Adam Driver.
1: Yeah. All right, and our last prisoner of note the man the myth the legend one who uh, recently left us a couple years ago i think yeah. honestly it took him long enough
0: oh my god i was i was happy to hear it was like my god why is he still alive exactly why are we even keeping this guy still alive i know uh, and that's uh, charles manson very famously uh, led a cult out here in uh, the los angeles area you know he was carrying out what he called helter skelter uh, which was like based off like the, the beatles song i think and yeah he was an awful dude
1: He ended up writing a song that I think the Beach Boys actually ended up playing I know that he was an aspiring songwriter he wasn't a particularly good songwriter but he did write a song that someone did end up covering and I want to say it was the Beach Boys but I want to go in, I would actually want to hear your pick first for this one
0: so Charles Manson he looks just like a fucking crazy guy and that's what I know about Charles Manson <laughs> uh, you know besides some of the other stuff but his look God he looks he looks ridiculous <laughs> you know he's got kind of crazy hair you know, when he got older, he he put like a Nazi he like a swastika on his it head. He carved it into his head. And he looked, you know, he was bald with like a goatee. But, you know, when he was younger, he had facial hair and like just kind of wiry, crazy hair. Right. I went with someone who I know could play this psycho. And he's, he's probably older than I should have cast, but he is really fucking good. And I think he could play Charles Manson from an early side if you, you know, get some good makeup to definitely play the older side of some older makeup. I went with Christian Bale. Okay, He is such a good actor that he can. I think he can pull off the look and he dives into his characters so much. And I know he can play crazy <laughs> from American Psycho <laughs> right. and from a bunch of stuff. I think Christian Bale would do a fantastic I job. I like
1: that. It was kind of unexpected. I didn't, uh, I didn't see that one coming. I like that one, especially because you thought, and I like that you kind of pick someone who you could take through time from younger to yeah. older. I pretty much just focused on the younger one. Younger, yeah. Probably, you know, focusing on the crimes and all that stuff. And and there have been movies made of this. But, you know, in the interest of recasting, I found someone who I really like. And he's actually someone who I think you've mentioned you really like as an actor. So I hope you like him in this role, even though he's playing a psycho. Uh, I went with the actor Ben Foster.
0: Oh, I love Ben Foster. Yeah, I think he's a highly underrated actor, and he could totally dive into this th- that role. That's cool. He's,
1: yeah, he seemed like the kind of guy who could who could get into this and could portray Manson in a way that was you know not only true to Manson but cinematic and yeah and uh, really kind of make the story. Sort of stick out and pop. So that's who, yeah, that's yeah. who I went for. Uh,
0: nice. All right, I like that. Cool.
1: Yeah, definitely one of our more amicable uh, castings, which which is which <laughs> yeah. is fine. I think there were some definitely some really good choices made on both sides, and in some cases, choices where it would be hard to pick one over the other.
0: We should probably just be given casting director <laughs> jobs. S- hire us, people. This is what I, we would love to do. We can do this for your company. We're doing this, you know, for free right now, but pay us, please. <laughs> Alright,
1: and that was our Famous Prisoners casting.
0: Please join us next time for an album review episode. We take you back to the grunge era while we review Nirvana's album Nevermind. If you have any questions
1: or any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like for us to review as part of your childhood, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at at blast past cast that's at blast past cast on both facebook and twitter so until next time i'm john and i'm adam and thanks for joining us see you next time